0: Anyway, stuff that we can talk about. <laughs> I, uh, I've been watching Return of the Saint on your advice. And, oh, yes. Uh, you know, it's funny because I actually like it more than the Roger Moore Saint, which is a strange mm-hmm. thing to say. But it's true because it doesn't have that cheesy, you know how 60s shows are, even 60s spy shows. It doesn't have that artificial veneer. It feels more like, you know, like a 70s cop show but with the added thing of being, you know, running around in Rome or whatever the hell else. And decent looking women for the most part. He's not Roger Moore. I'll say that. I think he said they cast me because I looked like him. I was like, well, I don't think he looks like him, but he certainly has his voice.
1: He told me that. He told me that. Um, he was at uh, the ill fated chiller. And he was one of the last – I did two Q&As that morning. It was Hammer people, and he was. they threw him in there. It was British Horror people, actually. They threw him in there. He looked great. He looked great. And, you know, I unfortunately, I have Martine, Caroline, and the usual suspects who don't shut the fuck up. And so I was trying to get some things out of him, and I asked him about that show he said that he had to meet Roger. It was a stipulation. So this you might be interested in. Nobody filmed that, I believe. Otherwise, you would see it by now. He said he, it's a stipulation was he had to meet Roger when he auditioned. Because Roger, although he did not have say, he had say, if you know what I mean. I said, okay. We got along really well. And he said, Roger said, you look like me. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, I got some, I got some things, you know, we forget, you know, he, you know, he did a couple of really interesting movies, too, you know, uh, and uh, he had a hell of a career on stage uh, over in England. So it's a shame I couldn't spend a half an hour talking to that guy, you know, because as the answers he was giving me when I asked him some questions, it was making me think, you're really more fucking interesting than these hammer girls who've been doing this shtick for so long. They forgot how to make it interesting.
0: Exactly. I, I've seen them a couple of times. And you know how many years it's been since I've been to one of these shows? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I, I mean, no, you no. Know, sometimes it could be it, – it's almost always fun because they have anecdotes and stuff. But they forget how to make it interesting to people who sat down and never seen them before or heard them do this. So they start talking to each other. Oh, darling, do you remember? And like people are like, what are they talking about? Yeah. You know? <laughs> And so he was really interesting, yeah. And but he did say that about that. So you like that show? Good. Oh, I love it. And
0: we also saw Shonen Knife. That was a surprise. I didn't even think they were still around, much less touring. Yeah, you so, went. Yeah. We. Uh, I posted one piece of, uh, of one of the shorter songs. It was nice because I went there expecting to do a couple of songs off of Happy Hour. That was the big album for me of them, and. They only skipped one of them. They did three songs from their friggin' album, and I got them all on tape. The new drummer is a ball of fire. I mean, you know, they're all little soccer bumpkins basically. And it shows, especially with her, the drummer. But she was having a great old time up there, shaking her head around like a beetle, and really working the drums for it. You know, it's, it's simplistic stuff, you know how it is. But when she got a chance to work the kit, she was doing it, and it was high energy the whole time. You know, they're Japanese. They do their little stage shtick, like they know when to go and hit. Okay, now we got to put the guitars over the audience, and now we got to go back-to-back or whatever. But it worked. It was good. It was fun. There was enough high-energy punk stuff, and not just the, the more indie, Red crossy kind of stuff that they do.
1: You know, speaking of that, I'm surprised that he's not having the five, six, seven, eights come back to chiller. Otherwise either that or he's not paying attention. They just played Asbury Park a couple of weeks ago. Oh really? With three other bands. They played not the big place, the small but the wonder bar. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, Okay, they're playing around. What's up with that? You know, like and I didn't get a chance to post about it and like you know, to say, Hey everybody, the five, six, seven, eights are in town. Mm-hmm. They're less, you know... Well, it's because of that Tarantino movie that they got popular. They're fun. They're fun. But the thing is, if you saw them on the street, like, who are these maybe marginally cute older Japanese
0: women? <laughs> well, that's what it was like, because, you know, the two of them... I mean, the, the drummer's a kid. She's new. But yeah. uh, the two of them are... God knows. Maybe they're pushing 50. Maybe they're older. I, I really... Yeah, yeah. They've been around for a while. But, you know, Atsuka still looks decent for the woman of her age. And the other one, you know, she is what she is. They did not look bad for especially if you want to call high energy, this kind of stuff, for women of that age group. I'm like, okay, they're well. still out there doing their thing, and they don't look old and tired, let's put it that way. They're certainly having fun. You know, it was a good show, and the only thing that was funny was we didn't know what to expect because we usually don't do this kind of show when we go out and see stuff. So I'm like, well, let's see what happens. And the first act that opened up was just kind of really generic and whatever. I, I saw some of them on the floor. I didn't like their personalities, whatever. But then the second one opens up, and... <laughs> Is this Filipino kid? I was talking to his father beforehand. I didn't know that it was his father. Uh, just oh. And he goes up there with yeah, you know, a bunch of college kids apparently because they thought they were bitching about how they don't have any money except to eat ramen all day long. He had like a second guitarist that was a Japanese kid and he was okay, but he goes up there. He, sometimes he play the guitar, which was alright. But the whole time, he started doing. I don't know. He, my wife thinks he thought he was hot shit, and that's very possible. I thought he was insane. (laughs) I thought he was taking drugs. The guy's out there, he's like ripping his clothes off, spitting water in the air, bobbing around, freaking out. And it's like, Kind of mid-tempo indie-type songs, you know, college rock stuff. And he's there, I mean, figure like Camper Van Beethoven or some shit like that, right, or Flaming Lips even. He's there freaking out and screaming and jumping around and shaking. He knocked over the drum set right on the first song, jittering, cursing at the audience. Every song they did was about how come you aren't in my bed, how come you ain't fucking me, or I'm going to fuck you three times tonight. And that was like the choruses. I'm like, what the hell? And he brought in this contingent of local girls, that just came in, literally came in the door while he was playing, blocked the stage, and were, like, dancing around like the Charlie Brown and the Peanuts through the whole set, and then disappeared. I'm like, what the fuck was that all about? Even people in the audience that were like, because it was mostly, like, a, a 90s crowd, so these, like, all older folks now, with, like, you know, their, their hips, they're hipsters, they got the little bowler hats or whatever, but, you know, they are all losing their hair, or they are graying or whatever else, and then they got their girlfriends with the funny like, uh, Betty Blue-type haircuts, but, you know, now they're older. And they're all standing there, and I hear them talking, like, yeah, well, the first band wasn't bad. <laughs> and it's sad because the band itself, most of them were decent players. It was okay. The drummer was good. The bass player was a little bit you know, too busy, but he was fine. The other guitarist was good. He wasn't bad when he stuck to the guitar. But holy shit. And I'm like, wow, what the hell is his father? And I think his mother was out there, too. My wife told me she was running the merch table. I'm like, what the hell were they thinking about this? It was, it was a horrible, it was good and bad at the same time. I was laughing. I was literally laughing as he sings stuff. I'm like, wow, what the fuck was that all about? And none of it fit with Shonen Knife. I don't know how they even put him there. <laughs> but, but, so we're standing there the whole time looking at each other like, geez, should we have done this? But until they came on, and then it was great. But it was too short a show. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, usually those sets are too short. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, so John Saxon. Um, I I remembered at the last minute that I did interview him for my last book. So I have some interesting things because if you, if you like me pulled some of your research off of the net, I have some actually potentially juicy stuff. Oh, okay, good. Including that uni- that mysterious universal contract out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know. there's <laughs> a, a really couple of funny things. So Where's he going? She's going to leave the Comic Con. She got tickets to her job. I know. Why is it like I have friends that are going to like the- I have people that go like I work from home, I'm not feeling well. I got four tickets to Comic Con. I'm going every single day. Well you go fucking get off DBS and do that. Right? <laughs> I can't. I'm broke. I'm you know, it's like Yo, know, my my friend, uh, my one of my close friends. You know, we went out to eat two weeks ago. One of the few times somebody's watching the cat. I can go out and I said, "Well, we're gonna do something cheap, so we go to a, to a brewery, which is all right, not too, you know, a bad." And then we went to this place in Union City, hotties everywhere. It was a steak place, right? I was like so. The other night, I spent like almost a hundred dollars. I said, "I can't Ooh. do this, man." Yeah, yeah this sure. is like. I, I need this for two weeks to go back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, God bless her. I hope she has spawn. But, yeah, I, I, I would love to do that one day. I just, <sighs> I don't know. All right. All right.
0: All right. <laughs> You're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the gold Mine, you're such a guy to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, John Saxon on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. To the, oh, jeez, I don't even know what episode it is. In the ninth season of Weird Things Inside the Goldmine, you're a guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, tonight... Born in Brooklyn, the former Carmine Orrico started out as an old-school studio contract player, starring in healthily budgeted but forgettable films alongside the likes of Mamie Van Doren, Esther Williams, Sal Mineo, Faye Ray, Jimmy Stewart, Fabian, and Sandra Dee as a succession of JDs, teen idols, and romantic interests, before carving out something of a niche in film and television westerns. With a string of Italian policial tachi a pair of Gene Roddenberry pilots, and a succession of oddball efforts like Jill Don Baker's Much Lampoon Mitchell, Claudia Jennings' exploiter at Moonshine County Express, and delirious mexican echo horror the bees saxon moved definitely through cop films exploitation, filipino and italian horror corman sci-fi and a number of slasher films throughout the 70s and 80s lending his presence to dozens of cult films and nearly as many television appearances across genre and covering major swaths of global filmmaking so join us tonight as we discuss the slick to suave but always likable genre standby john saxon cops mobsters heroes monsters cowpokes and kung fu the wild career of john saxon So before we start digging into his filmography, we should also note the guy's done a lot of television, and I mean a lot. I just picked out a few highlights, many of which we caught him on, and you may remember him making special by his presence as he tended to do. He was on Kung Fu. It's
1: it's funny that you mention that because I wanted to mention that too. Go ahead, go ahead. In the Streets of San Francisco, Police Story, The Rookies, The Mary
0: Tyler Moore Show, Banachek, The Vanishing Chalice, which is a really good one. The Six Million Dollar Man, he was there a couple of times. He was actually in one that was a crossover with Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic Woman. It was the crossover. It was one of those Bigfoot ones, if anybody remembers you're those infamous right. ones.
1: You're right, you're right. And, you know, I did, and a point I wanted to make, not not to cut you off, was like, this is one of these these actors who, he's still alive, this is one of those actors who is like, historically a gem you know he's like he's our he's our connection to you know like i grew up in the 60s I, you know I, I i'm such and such years old now but i grew up in watching tv in the 60s and the 70s which is why when i watched once upon a time in hollywood i kind of dug a lot of that stuff but I remember Gunsmoke. I remember Time Tunnel, The Virginia, Bonanza, Kung Fu, Streets of San Francisco. And this guy is a gem. And I mentioned it. I called him a gem before because he's been in nearly everything that's good and bad <laughs> and soporific. But he, he's also a journeyman. I, and I have some quotes uh, later on I'll sprinkle throughout the show because I, I did interview him a few years back. And he, he's aware of himself as a journeyman actor. And he likes to do that. He he doesn't want to be elite, and you you just—you mentioned you started with these TV credits. Right, popped in. It's like he's he's in everything. Yeah. I mean, Hawaii Five-O. Yep. And then as he aged, this hilarious, hilarious credit—I believe it's correct—he plays Uncle Bernardo Bonelli in *The Murder She Wrote* '94 for Angela, Angela Lansbury. who's like 104 years old now. So it's—it's just—it's funny. The guy's been all over the place
0: yeah he's just like we had done a show
1: recently on roddy mcdowell it's the same idea yes same thing same cut of the mustard although a bit different a bit different i say because john Saxon's a very curious actor why do i say that for me he is we we've tackled a lot of over the years besides doing directors and genres and studios and and Jallos and and you know mexican and blah 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 we've only once in a while we did actors and now we're we're, we're doing pretty much actors and actresses as as, as a fun new thing and uh, it keeps us it keeps us fresh and tasty <laughs> but um the thing I, I really interested about him is he he he's a very refined kind of fellow mm-hmm. he really works hard at doing what he does so he wasn't like like you watch sopranos now, here's, here's, here's the point I'm going to make here. You've got a lot, a lot of guys who have been doing character actor work for a long time that are in The Sopranos doing smaller parts. But John Saxon, formerly Carmine. <laughs> Carmine. You can see why he changed his name. <laughs> um, well, John Saxon, he's, he doesn't have this Guido persona. Yeah. He doesn't have this deep Italian American voice. And he doesn't have a bunch of stuff going on with him that would he you can't really pigeonhole this guy, which is what I like about him. Mm. Although he has a, he, he always looks the same. Yes. yes I will say. <laughs> John Saxon, unfortunately, you know, we, 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 we were just speaking about Robert De Niro. But Robert De Niro can be a changeling. Like Al Pacino can be a changeling at times. Like other actors can be a changeling at times. But John Saxon would always look at John Saxon. Yes. Yeah. You know, even when he was in Eastwood's, uh, I believe it was Joe Kidd, where he played a Mexican. And he had this long mustache. It was John Saxon, a long mustache and a great Mexican accent. <laughs> um, but I like the man. I've never seen him say anything bad about anybody until he said bad things to me about Antonio Margariti. We'll get to that later. <laughs> Uh, but uh, back to you and, and your TV thing, and you know, forgive me for popping in there.
0: And it's fine, because we actually met John ourselves, and it was funny twice, because first I got him to sign one of his things from Enter the Dragon, and it happened to have Jim Kelly on it. And I had in the back of my head, you know, if I ever see Jim Kelly, I'll get him to sign it, because it, it was John, Jim Kelly, and Bruce Lee. John signed it, and years later... We saw Jim Kelly he finally came out of it. He said, he was in seclusion. I said, well, yeah, wait, you're hiding out for years? I was in seclusion. Don't know what the hell that meant. But right. <laughs> anyway, he came back, and he was really cool. And that was before he passed, obviously. And he was so excited. Was like, oh, you saw John? When did you have him sign this? I haven't seen him in years. It was more like, if you know where he's at, let me see this guy again. He was that kind of guy. John, when we saw him, was hilarious because he looks the same. He was a little bit older, obviously. Uh, a little less hair, maybe. But he... <laughs> my wife was wearing a uh, pin you know like a dr who pin and it was leela you know louise jameson the tom baker era and for some reason he's like oh is that you <laughs> He thought it was like my wife in the button she looks nothing like leela it was hilarious and his hand was trying to calm that. Like, no no no, no i was not so he's got a little bit of that doddering old man thing about him but still yeah, yeah, yeah. lovable lovable guy really one of the nicer guys i met we met several nice ones but anyway like i said he was in this one with, with the bigfoot thing which was hilarious if you remember bigfoot from outer space yes this is the plot he was in Starsky and Hutch as a vampire he mm-hmm. was in one of the Wonder Woman one of the first episodes I don't think it was the pilot may have been it was a two-parter where he was a Nazi he was played a lot of Nazis in his time on TV anyway he was in the Rocker Forest, Quincy Fantasy Island Hawaii Five-0 Vegas the A-Team as a preacher and, and it was actually kind of like a Jim Jones type Hardcastle McCormick Scarecrow Mrs. King I mean this is like a thing if you go through decades okay in the 60s he was in these shows oh yeah all the famous ones he's in the 70s all the big but ones
1: you know what's really interesting about this though that that w- what we were both talking about his television roles this is in the meantime he has a very healthy feature film career this is totally aside from that yeah
0: exactly that's well, why i was just kind of glazing over this first he was very busy this guy worked a lot i mean yeah okay some of these were smaller parts but not
1: always Right. you could you could see him on quincy and the next week he's the posters are up in the, the low the local Lows. Triplex. For the glove or something. (laughs) Yeah, for the glove or something. But it's like starring John Saxon and Rosie Greer. But still. You know, it's like hey, I just saw that guy on TV. You know, he's starring in a movie. Let me go check it out. Here's yeah. that Magnum PI. I mean, remember
0: it was that Dynasty, Hotel. You know, those like nighttime soap operas, Falcon Crest, Murder She Wrote. You mentioned <laughs> he was on three sure. times. So this guy was busy. And that's just like you know a sampling of okay, this stands out. These are representative of the decade that people will know these shows and they were a big deal at the time. So you know, the guy did a lot of work going way on back. I don't know if you want to give a before he starts making his films.
1: I do. So I I interviewed John uh, a couple of years ago at a at a show and he agreed to meet outside the show, which was really nice because then we could actually spend some more time together. Yeah, okay, here's a snippet. I'll skip the boring stuff, people. Is anybody really interested? Well, maybe some people are. You don't know, like how John Saxon played Mexicans and he played Jews and Arabs? You know, he was in one of these uh Antebi movies. He played, he played So, okay, here's a quote Growing up, we knew the humor of other groups and their mannerisms and so on. I played Jews, Arabs, Italians. Of which I have a background myself. I've done Irish, British. I've done Scandinavian. I think that helped because I keep moving around. Then you moved around geographically, and then when I went to Europe, I would work there, and I came back to the U.S. So I think those are some of the reasons why I'm so good at different playing different characters from different backgrounds. Because Brooklyn culturally was a melting pot. So the thing, the thing I wanted to mention before we jump into his movies, there's there's a lot of like hints at, but some misinformation about. His universal contract. So I asked him, I said, so, you know, how'd you get discovered? I'm playing Jane. He said, (laughs) I was a male model in the early 50s, and they were photographing me from modern romance, true romance, and true stories. And these actually existed.
0: Yeah, comic books.
1: Which had stories illustrated by photographs, sort of like uh, the Italian equivalent. Uh, What do you call those? Fumetti. Fumetti. So, therefore, I posed for whatever story was. Sometimes it was... Joe Joe was crazy, or something like that. So, the one that came to the attention of Universal, I played a Puerto Rican kid, a gang kid from the Bronx, who was shot in the gang war, lying in a trash can, bleeding. Unfortunately, they printed this on the cover and they used this as a, as a color photograph. Universal contacted me. I drew their attention. I went to the West Coast, auditioned, and became a contract player. So, there you go. <laughs> yeah i mean
0: if you've seen these old romance comics a lot of them and actually those are the ones people gravitate towards have photo covers they actually are like you know models standing there posing and doing whatever and then inside it would be artwork and i think they also had like you mentioned they they did have magazines that were more like format these things but you know that went away a long time ago
1: these were even around until the early 70s i remember i who's the audience for these lewis and and doc we couldn't answer that uh maybe it was an aging audience or maybe because some of the photographs were scintillating in a way, you know, like uh, women, women in brasiers and panties and the guys, they ring over them with the knife, you know, that kind of thing. My know?
0: father used to bring home, uh, when he was doing a certain job, that they had Santo magazines from Mexico. They were all in Spanish, but he'd mm. bring them home for me as a kid, and it was hilarious. I was like, the hell is this? And they were all basically from Eddie. just like you'd see something like Bloody Pit of Horror, the Mickey Hargitay film there. Right you know or diabolic or one of those kind of things that's where they originated from valentina and it was you know like i said it was in the 70s i'm like what the hell is this stuff and i thought they're really strange even then especially since it was all like hey am okay whatever I'm like, huh? <laughs> but they, they were still making them so you're right they definitely lasted at least through that decade
1: they did, they did. They lasted that decade. And this is like the early 50s, as he's saying. So they, they probably lasted for like two decades. But I think the early, the late 60s, early 70s, that whole Manson era killed that stuff off. Mm-hmm. So back
0: yeah. in the 50s, now he's got this contract. And he's doing really big parts. A lot of times he's on credit. He was in A Star Is Born. He was in a couple of JD films, you know, Rock Pretty Baby and whatever. The hell. Which,
1: which, which actually is interesting because, you know, He's got this look, but Rock Pretty Baby, you mentioned earlier, Mamie Van Duren. Oh, I'd love to talk to her. She's 87. She looks incredibly hot. Don't ask me. <laughs> it, th- those that follow Mamie on Facebook know what I'm talking about. It, it don't, yeah, it's weird. Uh, uh, <laughs> wow. Well, no, it's, it, no, it's thing. It. You, you'll see what I'm talking about. No, in a nice way, incredibly hot. You know, not, <laughs> not, not like, you'll, you know, not, 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 a nice, nice way. Um. Uh, so <laughs> that came across wrong sort of. Anyway, so I know hat, about you not, and these gilfs. <laughs> yeah. So Rock Pitty Baby, yes, you're right. It was the throwaway part, but suddenly it got it got him notice. And he did the sequel, Summer of Love, which mm-hmm. I think it was retitled something else. And he was doing this stuff for a while.
0: Yes. And then he started doing a couple of westerns like The Unforgiven and The Plunderers, Posse from Hell. The first one that I was going to touch on was Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation. Okay. So yeah, there really was a time when this was considered a fun, if not uproarious, family comedy. Don't believe it. Check out all those shitty early 60s TV sitcoms that people seem to venerate. You know, the ones with like, no bathroom and two beds in every bedroom, an obnoxious laugh track and a moral at the end. Pretty much everything detestable well about American culture before it degenerated to Lovecraftian levels around the millennium. There, yeah, that's what you're thinking of. So, this one is doddering old Jimmy Stewart, a pastor prime Maureen O'Hara, and their obnoxious kids going on a family vacation in the old Woody station wagon. The house they get is half the monsters and half Mr. Blandingsville's dream house, all haunted house aesthetic. And falling apart. The daughter's self-conscious about her braces, so Stuart bribes Fabian to dance with her. There's lots of bickering and fighting, so Stuart winds up taking fucking. He's talking war and peace with some blonde bimbo on the beach who's just trying to take him for his money and john saxon has a bit part as a head up his ass ivory tower professor who has weird ideas about raising children and he's also by the way stewart's son-in-law fun 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 yeah this is actually fucking painful back in the days when amc didn't have commercials i actually found this kind of tripe at least sort of weirdly homey and comforting but these days it's like ah jeez, this is almost unwatchable
1: Yeah, I I have to agree. You know, the early days of cable, uh, you would see it occasionally on the late-night network TV or...
0: Or the Turner Networks or AMC or...
1: Or AMC back in the day. I watched it. I was like, eh, it's okay, but it's oddly enough by that time I'm older but I'm seeing people from genre film appear in in the roles and it's like oh I didn't know he was in this or I didn't mm-hmm. know she was in that that kind of thing I I, I didn't rewatch this one for the show because uh, it was a surprise you can bring this title up but uh I, you know it's it's an of its time thing yes know a lot of these early pictures i do want to talk about the county coming up soon Mm -hmm. a lot of these early pictures growing up uh 60s and 70s pre-cable you had a couple of tv stations and some of your best stuff was on late at night
0: and the syndicates too yeah
1: and the syndicates too right thank you for correcting that or adding in and late at night and so if you were a terrible sleeper like i always was or Stayed up late to see what could happen now, you would find the strangest stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. Oh,
0: yeah. I had a friend that I actually, he became my friend because he was in the horror films. We both met over talking about Equinox, the Jack Hill movie. Mm. And and this is Grammar School we're talking about. He would tell me some weird shit he was watching because, you know, I would get up to watch horror films where I'd stay up to watch stuff on Fright night or whatever the hell else. Right. And there was like Euro horror that was just out like a, a couple years before, Spanish horror, you know, whatever. So I'm watching stuff like A Bell from Hell. He tells me one time, I was like, yeah, hey, you know, I stayed up at whatever it was, three in the morning to watch Flower Drum song. I'm like, What? <laughs> What? So, yeah, there's really strange shit on the middle of the night.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, it's funny. Like, if you dismiss that kind of thing, you, you have to watch as much of this weird stuff as possible. Cause, and yes, flower drum song does come <laughs> into the, the weird category. There's reasons for everything. It all comes around. <laughs> yes, flower drum songs is one of the weirdest fucking things you ever saw. And But we won't go back to that right now. So I I guess we're going to shoot off to The Girl Who Knew Too Much.
0: Yes, The Girl Who Knew Too Much. Saxon's the love interest and de facto second lead in this amusing, rather Scooby-Doo-ish jello mystery from Mario Bava. And we did a show on him way back when. He's the long-suffering boyfriend of our decidedly neurotic lead, Letitia Roman, who isn't half bad looking, but hardly worth all the manic freakouts, panic attacks, and wild leaps of fantasy logic she's subject to at the drop of a hat. And by the time she fortifies her hands home with talcum powder and hallways covered in rope, she starts physically abusing him as well, resulting in a broken finger and a black eye, among other things. Even worse is the colossal case of blue ball she keeps leaving the guy with, despite his best <laughs> efforts. He's, she's got to be in her late 30s, but she acts like a 1940s teenage ingenue with all her prudish holding out date after date. Her abject refusal to give him any is probably the reason she's so damn hysterical in the first place. But if you can get past all the humor bits like that, this is a typically well-lit, eerie, and visually stunning modern-day compliment to his black son. In much the same way as Argento's Tenebrae is to Deep Red, all Karaskuro's shadows, wet cobblestone streets, evocative half lit hallways, and this gorgeous hilltop villa. And, of course, there's the Hitchcockian mystery of the alphabet killer and all the mysterious people who may or may not be them, plus Vermont seeing a murder and being stalked, but unable to get anyone to believe her due to a set of ongoing circumstantial evidence that's built against her. This one's far from serious, as you can probably tell, but it works on several levels, and it remains one of my favorites of these sort of Italian gothics, despite not being period set or having any real supernatural or fantasy elements. It's a good film.
1: Oh, I really like this memory. I, I went so much out of my way, as so I got I to... Gotta dvd from france with the english subs which actually plays different you know sorry tim lucas but you know you really have to see all these different versions because sometimes things just come off differently the french one to me french language version and the one recut for france doesn't have anything sexy you know you would expect me to say that you know sexier elements we're still talking 1962 here but it comes off more darker and there's a whole thing about her in the airport, which is a little longer and pushed up to the front, which you see some of in other versions where she has cigarettes and are they funny cigarettes? Yes. And that's suspected of maybe smuggling funny cigarettes. You know what I'm talking about. People don't ask. And in that version, which I like the most of all of them, you know, I still, I still enjoy all, all of the versions. Saxon's character comes off sort of like, now here's the thing, folks. If you you're really into movies like me and doc and you see enough different versions different variants of films you can actually see what's going on things cut and keyed in for other countries like sexier non-sexier blah 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 but back in these days the the early to mid 60s they would definitely shoot sometimes different movies almost all, all together with all this different footage and in this french version don't ask me a name, I'll have to pull it off the shelf and I can edit it as a comment if you really folk if you guys really want that. In this one, John Saxon's character comes off very vagueish. I he does it sometimes in all the other ones, but in this one, the French version the most. Comes off very vague. Sort of like, Hmm, is he the killer? Yeah, you know, it's alluded to in other versions, but I think in the French ones the most I, I asked him about this movie. He enjoyed working on it. He said he'd been to Italy previous uh probably for the film augustino and he said his family's from italy so he's already traveled there apart from enjoying working on the movie he didn't have anything negative to say it's a great bava film Mm -hmm. i mean you know historically but there, there are many versions of it out there and that there are Different ways to look at his character, too.
0: Yeah. I do think that some of that came across in the, quote, official version, the Italian version that I'd seen. But, again, what's official? I mean, that's probably the version of intended, but you never know with these kind of productions. Money comes in from everywhere, and every country wants something cut or, you know, filmed for special scenes for their own. In the end, it really comes down to who's holding the purse string. Mm Mm-hmm. So, next three films, I have nothing to say about, but you wanted to speak to The Cavern?
1: I did. I did. I saw this late. We were just speaking about late-night TV. This is a, a 64 Italian-German-American war drama. Yes, G.I.s. Uh, directed by Everett G. Ulmer, who's famous as the... Uh, noir. Noir. Cheapo horror, uh, cheapo sci fi Noir. cheap sci fi guy. He did a couple good ones. What he did, he, he made this very... Uh, claustrophobic movie it, it, it could have been a stage play god knows it was actually partly funded by germans and italians so this is really interesting you know uh, so we have ever everybody, hope everybody's sitting down now peter marshall wow uh, what's greatest? larry hagman brian hearn john saxon rosanna Schifano, who's appeared in a lot of not so much italian horror or thriller she was in the witch she was in the witch but she did a lot of the sword and sandal pictures uh, and a lot of German guys that you would recognize. Anyway, this is a, a bunch of GIs get stuck in this cave during uh, one of the, the uh, big onslaughts, you know, during World War II. Claustrophobia, it's a cave-in. So claustrophobia sets in, and people start snapping out. And, uh, you uh, know, Saxon really stood out. Larry Hagman really stood out. He's the captain, and he, he's the one who's most claustrophobic. Peter Marshall, of all people... Billy really did some good work in this. Uh, before, he was like a TV game, game, show, game host. show host. <laughs> he did, yeah, a he yeah. Yeah, did a couple of movies. Yeah, uh, he did a couple of movies. It's it's interesting movie. If you ever catch, I think, Turner Classic Movies, resurrects from Time to Time, it's not a terrible picture and it's certainly worth seeing. Winchester 73 was something he did for TV. He also did the Doomsday Flight. For William Graham, another one of these odd cast movies, uh, TV movie, Jack Lord, Edmund O'Brien, Van Johnson. You guys already can smell the smoke. You know, <laughs> Crazy maniac gets on board a plane with a bomb. He threatens, you know, he sends in a preordained bom- uh, bomb threat. Yeah, you know, it's the kind of thing. Macaulay, Malachi Throne is in this. It takes all space Edward, from Batman. Hey, <laughs> right. Edward Asner, Michael Sarazen. Wasn't Malachi uh,
0: Throne also the chief on one of the I don't think it was Texas Thief, it, but one of those shows. Maybe it was the yes. of Thief. for one I season know. he was the
1: maybe for one season. I can't you can't recall from other one season. Possibly. Oh uh, but but Richard Carlson is a pilot. Yeah, you know, I always love Richard Carlson. Very strange odd you know, back back in these days, we're talking late sixties, early seventies, American television, this was NBC actually. American T V what makes him fucking strange movies man yes (laughs) it's like so the guy the guy like either knows he's dying or he's so bereft he's like i'm gonna plant the bomb i'm gonna take the plane the bomb is on i'm gonna have the threat be on the plane the bomb is on that i'm on (laughs) so if you're all following this whole thing and Jack Lord, pre Hawaii five O, is on this thing. Yeah, you know, and so John played a celebrity on the flight who gets a little exasperated and sort of like in that mode of like, Hey, I'm a star. Why right? you know, what's going on here? You know? Uh, John could do that some sometimes. <laughs> just play that play that kind of role, like uh just kick into high gear. <laughs> but uh It's a fun little picture. I I think people should seek it out, especially if it gets, you know, if you're like switching channels and TCM plays that movie, it's it's worth a look. I I saw it years and years ago, but I still remember it being so odd and so off-kilter that if you're watching it as a youngin' back in those days, like, what the fuck is this? This is weird. (laughs) Go ahead.
0: Uh, so anyway, next one I want to get to is The Nightcaller. It's a cheesy Matt Monroe-style theme song by Mark Richardson. It sets everyone off on a very strange foot for this vintage British sci-fi picture. If you've seen stuff like Devil Girl from Mars or Stranger from Venus, speaking of Eldritch Elmer, you know what to expect. Good characterization, lots of atmosphere, but at the cost of a low budget and not a lot of special effects. I mean, come on, it's black and white in 1965. Even Doctor Who would be going color in a few years. John Saxon is the head of a rather small group of scientists. His team consists of a 100-year-old Maurice Denham and scary Patricia Haynes, who is one of Michael Cain's exes. Not exactly a crack team of specialists there, investigating a meteor that turns out to be some sort of alien transmitter. Not long after, a tall guy in a burlap sack, kind of like Jason in Friday the 13th Part 2 face mask, turns up, kidnapping teenage girls who apply to win some cheesy bikini magazine contest, so he can repopulate his planet. That's right, Jupiter needs women. It's a John Gilling job that long before he did the Corners films for Hammer, you know, Plague of the Zombies, The Reptile, and right after Shower with the Cat. So you know it's going to work and pretty well at that. Slow as these films tend to be, but it's atmospheric as hell. And I thought it was a very good little pop boiler.
1: Oh, yeah. it's it's Yeah, it's atmospheric as hell. It's very eerie. This is one of those, I have to say, outside of Hammer, outside of Amicus, any other British studio you could name check in this time period, 1965, this is... It's indie too, independent uh, studio. This is one of the most eerie black and white pictures I can recall. I didn't know what to make of it at the time. I still sort of don't because a good cast, uh, you know, not the best in the world, but come on, you know, we got some, we got some hard-hitting guys who did a lot of British stage oh, yeah. and who are, were already vets, you know, veterans in uh, British British TV mm-hmm. and British British films. You know, John Carson. Captain Cronos, Warren Mitchell, Maurice Denham, you know, like the list goes on. And Saxon is the lead, which is really interesting. So they kind of like popped him over there. So, you know, showed like they did 10 years earlier when they're bringing over people like Brian Donnelly for the Quatermass pictures. to so spring bring over an American actor to headline this British picture. But Saxon didn't have the gravitas at that time. So I was really curious why he's in this. But at the same time, he works well. But it's an eerie film. And it works, and and I really think people should check go, go out of the way go out of your way and check this out. It's a strange freaking movie.
0: Definitely. And if you ever want to hear John Saxon talk with a British accent, which is kind of tacky actually, but it's amusing <laughs> enough. This is the one to say. Yeah, <laughs> it's not
1: horrible. It's it's. A night caller. <laughs> it's doable. Oh, you you're hung up on that theme song. I know. <laughs> it's, right.
0: it's cheesy. But next next we get even weirder. Yes. Oh, wow, this is a real strange one. All right, so Queen of Blood, Curtis Harrington, who also gave us the odd night Tide, plus a few interesting 70s TV movie horrors like Games, Killer Bees, and Devil Dog the Hound of Hell, here pulls an Al Adamson by swiping a lot of footage from one of those crappy Russian sci-fi fantasy films. He actually did the same thing for the unwatchable Voyage to a Prehistoric Planet, too. And appending it to this sub-planet of the vampires, proto-alien, proto-life force job, but unlike any of the three films aforementioned, this one just doesn't work. It fails utterly on atmosphere, claustrophobia, sets, even casting. John Saxon's okay as one of the lead astronauts. Dennis Hopper, far less so, is the first victim. But Basil Rathbone doesn't only look his age here, but he's positively obnoxious as the blinkered NASA head scientist-slash-dictator. Seriously, his scenes at the podium and viewscreen remind you of Fahrenheit 451 crossed with 1984, who sends him out to investigate the situation in the first place. The plot sounds good, we get a signal from outer space saying they're sending us an ambassador, but their ship crashed on Mars. So Saxon Hopper and the usual crusty old lady and stuffy barfly types that populate these sort of 50s and 60s sci-fi films head off to see what happened. There's a little back and forth, but eventually they find a green-faced geriatric type. And surprise, it's Life Force meets Planet of the Vampires. She hypnotizes each of the men in turn, then drinks their blood. But she's not really a vampire, she's a plant. And apparently she was going to Earth to lay a bunch of eggs and take over, hence the alien part. And a simple scratch from the other resident old bag on the flight kills her. Of course, there's a twist ending where Rathbone refuses to destroy the eggs, and then bam, it's over. In concept, this film was right up my alley. You know, dark, sci-fi horror, there's an apocalyptic bent, plenty of mystery in the dark depths of space. Hey, I'm there but in execution... Wow, what a stinker. And shouldn't they have cast a woman with real allure in that role, like you know the big hip stripper they used for the astounding She-Monster, or the kinky seven-foot Dom they had in The Devil Girl from Mars? Why use some old hmm. lady who looks like M. B. Davis from The Brady Bunch? <laughs> a major, <laughs> major fail, given the extreme disparity between the promise versus the hunk of shit that they delivered. People seem to love it, at least in certain quarters, but it's probably childhood memories and the idea of it, rather than the execution, which is honestly absolutely abysmal.
1: Well, the thing about uh, Florence Smiley, who you're referencing <laughs> <laughs> actually she was younger than she looked in that when she died in 78 she was only 60 really wow so yeah so she was a lot younger than she looked but uh, she was a check a check actress a model i guess she looked severe but i agree with you with the blonde get up and the extreme torpedo tip bra she was wearing <laughs> she just really she, you know, she also turns up in Carrington's games and then Dr. Doctor, Doctor Death Secret of Souls. So, you know, there's a the thing there. Um, yeah, she looked older, so she looked – this came up earlier – guilty, but in a weird way. And it's got a lot of interesting ideas. It's creepy. Not as, not as cool as uh, the previous film we were discussing with Saxon. Not by far, yeah. Not by far. But there's something definitely going on here. Um, it's weird. You would all it was distributed by aIP you would almost liken it to a Corman picture but it's actually not it's just it's picked up it was made for a cheap thousand dollars which people in feature filmmaking even in the mid 60s is cheap so you know like you should it's cheap and it shows the thing is though it's it's hmm I mean our our lead subject John Saxon does you He's know, fine he, He's fine. It's just he's a member of the sporting cast. You know, he's the lead here, but it's just – everything just kind of – it becomes a thing. It's just like one of these movies from the mid to late 60s that just ambiance alone retains its its uh, place in genre them. But as it being good or bad, that's it's up to – you it feels like an
0: al adamson picture and a lower rent one at that but
1: you know i keep expecting
0: sam the butcher to show up every time <laughs> <she is>
1: there. <laughs> yeah it's, it's a very strange thing it's a very strange thing
0: so next up it was, it was several years later we're talking about a well, seven year gap is enter the dragon
1: oh you're just skipping a lot girl. okay so go ahead what do you want to hit in there yeah i want to hit the appaloosa uh sydney j fury who did a couple of our uh fave uh, michael kane uh um, Harry Palmer Pictures, uh, did this uh, Western from Universal. Big, big, big. Uh, actually, uh, I'm not sure why you skipped it. Maybe you just thought, oh, it's a Western. Actually, Saxon was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. What a Golden Globe for this. So it's a big thing for him. This is pretty much almost like your typical atypical slash atypical Western. It's a feature film. Uh, Brando is a dude after Mexican Bandit choy medina played by ready john saxon <laughs> it's it's i've seen this a number of times it's it's available in many different versions apparently a long one a shorter version not as short not as long anjanette comer who was like a thing in the late 60s early 70s is and i'm not sure why and the loved one was a big deal yeah. for her and it's like yeah i don't know it's a good, interesting Western. It's also, though, uh, well, well, okay, if anyone can bear with me, any freaking Western, with like Colin Brando is weird. <laughs> uh, you mean Tea House of the August Moon wasn't was... weird? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean Westerns with Brando are weird. Did he, whether he chooses them, when he shows up on set and goes, you know, I don't like this. Let's, let's rewrite the script, okay? <laughs> That's pretty good brother rewrite the script the way I want it and this guy who's the, the villain put him put a long mustache on it yeah yeah <laughs> and maybe that's what happened but I have to assume that 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 Saxon went for the gusto on this oh here's a story he has a story about the Appaloosa. there's a very funny Hollywood story about how I got the role I had done another movie in 59 for Allied Artists. It was a Jeff Chandler film where I played a uh, young, tough Mexican guy or something like that. My agent knew that. My agent knew I could play that kind of part. But Universal laughed at the idea. They said, what are you talking about? This has got to be a Mexican who was going to be against Brando. Forget it. So my agent knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. <laughs> she says, show up. She said, sit in the waiting room. So I sat in the waiting room. That's about as much as I can do. I sat in the waiting room. So I'm sitting in the waiting room, talking to somebody, and I glanced over his shoulder. And he said, see, now that's the kind of guy I'm looking for. <laughs> so they tested me. And I was probably the most favorable because I got the role. The powers that be universal didn't want me. But then Brando saw a screen test and said, okay, you can play Mexican. What else can you play? And that's Hollywood for you. (laughs) See, you got to be – it's nice talking to these people because we can't make assumptions from stuff we don't know. And then, and then you talk to them, and I'm like, yeah, you know, they didn't want me. My agent didn't want me. But then one guy says, come in. I'm sitting there all day. And the guy goes, yeah, that's the kind of guy I want. And they do a screen test. And, like, they still don't want me. But then somebody sees a screen test, says, yeah, that's the guy. Fucking Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> now, Joe Kidd is interesting because, again, he's playing a, what, what, what do we call it, the uh, Mexican Bandit Revolutionary. It's a dark, sturgeon Spectrum. It's one of, key, one of Clint Eastwood's really good. Westerns, post-Leone, 1972. Great cast. Uh, we got Robert Duvall, Don Stroud, James Wainwright, Paul Caso, Sick Bastard from a lot of movies, Dick Van Patten, which everybody remembers, so on and so forth. Uh, lots of familiar faces. And the lead villain is John Saxon, who organizes a peasant revolt against uh, local landowners because, you know, they bring Clinton as a local bounty hunter hunting for Indian land, disturbing the peace kind of guys. And he goes up against this guy and he really doesn't want to. It's really good script is by Elmore Leonard. I Always like Joe Kidd. Why doesn't it hand, hold up today? Well, <sighs> PC issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. PC issues. But uh, it's it, I remember seeing this in the theater. And I it was a really good Eastwood picture. And, and and Saxon, you know, what the guy, he could really throw that mustache on and pull it off. He could be seedy, too. When he's playing sort of an anti-hero, which is interesting. This is Eastwood's film, Joe Kidd, with Eastwood playing a pseudo-anti-hero. I, th- I guess he didn't want to play darkness within him for another year or two. So he th- we didn't do an Eastwood show, haven't we? No, not yet. So this is before he did something like High Plains Drifter, which is very weird. And there's a couple other movies in that realm. And so he wants to do the antithesis of the Leone things where he's like this man with no name, hero, slash marginal anti-hero. Where he comes in as a bounty hunter, a scumbag guy who will end up being the hero against this guy who's like a village hero, but who has to play against sides. So there's that. Oh, I Kissed the Hand, one of our police here at Tuskegee. Watchmo La Mani. I Kissed the Hand. Oh, uh, this is one of the really good ones. Arthur Kennedy. Um, Who directed it? Vittorio Schiraldi. Yeah, I mean never seen that. Uh, it. Oh, it's a really good one. Uh, Saxon is like, uh, what do they call Captain of all captains. Um, Capo de Capo. Capo de Capo of his family. And uh, he kind of loses his mind because he inherits everything from Arthur Candy, who plays Don Angelino, Augustino Belli, who I always had thing for, is in this. Oddly enough, the supporting cast is vaguely familiar, but not really people you've seen in a lot of Italian car- uh, crime films at this time period. Which I think why this movie, in a way, is a lesser remembered one. He really liked doing this movie, though. He uh, he, he thought it was one of his one of his better uh, Italian crime pictures, and uh, and he even he himself yes when i did i kissed a hand i can't i can't tell you why this is one of my less remembered crime films because i had such enjoyment making this movie the box office did pretty well but it wasn't a well-known director and for the life of me i can't tell you now why this is not available more on dvd that was pretty much his quote it
0: might be, you know, sometimes it's promotion, whoever's uh, putting the film out in the first place. It might be the fact that the director's not well known. You know, there's a lot of reasons these things happen. It's just nowadays they, sh- they dig up some right.
1: He's an Enter the Dragon. How the hell did that happen?
0: So, Enter the Dragon, in this universally beloved Bruce Lee classic, John is a likable hustler on the run from mob loan sharks who winds up taking part in a big-money martial arts tournament given by big-time drug dealer and full-time megalomaniac Mr. Han on his island fortress. He's a cat lover and appreciator of the female sex and knows fellow contestant Jim Kelly who's on the run from a bunch of racist hit cops after he stands up to their bullshit and winds up assaulting an officer and taking a cop car for a joy ride, kind of stupidly. The two of them form a hustling double act, setting up marks to blow good money on opponents before taking them out and so forth, Fort Kelly winds up taken out after refusing Han's offer to join his operation. Saxon's more savvy, playing along even when confronted with the human casualties involved, and Kelly's corpse, only to turn the tables and take out Han's main enforcer, Chinese Hercules himself, Bolo Young, in a final battle. He and Bruce appear to be the only survivors of the original contestants by film's end. Probably because of his involvement in this film, I've seen it mentioned in a few places that Section is a martial artist, but honestly, other than maybe you know stuff he did in the military, that's kind of bullshit. He's very clearly doubled in most fight shots by a taller man, and I didn't see anything that would account for this other than you know maybe in the military. You can see that he knows some street fighting and or basic boxing from a few punches and a stance he takes here and there, but that's it. I'm calling bullshit on that one i actually have a john saxon action figure apparently they'd done ones for him and bruce during some (laughs) late 90s revival or release of the film and my wife grabbed it for me when they had a price drop at toys r us for christmas that year so yes i still have this thing i I was like oh wow john saxon awesome and he's there in his little yellow gi (laughs) (laughs) so if i dig it out i'll take a picture for
1: the (laughs) post with the show or something so what do you want to say about this one it's a classic it's a classic it's every watches watch this every couple of years and i i find myself surprised by how much i enjoy it it's it's not a great film no uh, you know what it is it's like a live action comic book it's not really a spy film it's not really a kung yeah. fu
0: film it's not a kickboxing film it's like what the hell is this It's a comic book well
1: well <sighs> <laughs> it's a tough one because it's it's weird it's like of all people, why is John Saxon even in this movie? And why is he he's almost the lead, actually. And
0: um Everybody else here was a martial artist, a student of Bruce Lee, a known fighter. I mean,
1: supposedly supposedly John knows some stuff and I don't want to say he didn't uh doesn't. Yeah, but you see how many times not. he's
0: doubled in there.
1: I mean during all the fight sequences. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, yeah he's double he's doubled pretty well though. You know, Hell. Uh I asked him about this. So, <laughs> I said, "Tell me about Into the dragon." You see, I began seeing dojos all over the city, and every mall they were springing up. The martial, the martial arts were becoming a kind of international phenomena. So I said to myself, "Hey, I'll go to one. This is probably going to work out." So, I go to a dojo. I learn some stuff, and you know, I start feeling fit. And then one day I get this call. They said, we want to screen test you for this film. Now, I, I'm aware of who Bruce Lee is, but I thought this movie was way out of my league because the budget was so high. But I did the screen test. All I could say is it served a big, big market. Mm-hmm. It was a big moment, and the, and the world deserved a hero like Bruce. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of like a cagey almost answer. You know, I, I asked one thing, and he answered with another thing. I will say this for me myself. It, it, it's a joy seeing an actor like John Saxon supporting somebody like Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. It's a joy seeing someone like Bruce Lee in a major American picture. Um, he died before this even came out. Um, it's a classic. There, there will be nobody like Bruce Lee. He's such an interesting character. He, oh, yeah. There's all these videos with interviews. Where did these things come from? They've surfaced in, re, in the recent five, ten years. Like Bruce going, I am the shame of the flower." of the light and the candle whoosh it goes out did you see that go out no you did not go see it go out yo Bruce does shit like that and you're like what is he talking about don't think feel (laughs) yes
0: yes (laughs) don't think feel Be like water. I mean, you know, his philosophy actually gets me through life. I mean, it's not just a fighting thing. It actually is a Mm -hmm. philosophy you can live by, and it really does help. It's, you know, you think on your feet. You improvise. You take what's thrown at you, and you use it, and you flow with it, and you work your way around it. And that's... You know, really, it's it's how you do anything spontaneously. It's how you handle things in the moment. But, you know, it's funny because if you watch the film, even though Bruce is definitely the focus and the, the standout character in a lot of ways, it's not really Bruce's film. Somehow, he allows, I guess he steps back enough or whatever, other than the action sequences, which are all his, it's really Jim Kelly and John Saxon's film. He lets yes, them do the acting. And that made Jim Kelly a star, and I think it really helped John as well.
1: It really helped John as well, yeah. All of a sudden, he got like boosted up. He didn't do You know, he wasn't doing, you know, like, <laughs> Ender Dragon 3, 4, and 5 with John Thackson, <laughs> which is strange. Which is strange. Well, uh, again, I say yeah. You know, that's
0: why I don't think he's a martial artist at all. I think that's bullshit. I mean, yeah, he might have been able to do some normal street fighting or something. Maybe he did take some classes, that kind of thing. I believe yeah. that. But was he a martial artist, like Jim Kelly was a martial artist? Or, you know, like Bruce was? Hell no.
1: Yeah. <laughs> The only the only major gripe I have about Enter the Dragon is Lalo Schifrin, who did. Oh, the score was a little cheesy, yeah. Lalo <laughs> Schifrin, we, we, we did a couple shows on on Mission Impossible, uh-huh. and we have done a number of shows, either covering it, mentioning it, <laughs> etc. Because it's a love hate relationship we have at the show, yes. but Lalo Schifrin was the guy who did that fucking score. <laughs> doom, 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 doom. And somehow, around the time period of this movie, Lalo gets into feature films doing scores. And, you know, that brassy, yep. jazzy thing doesn't work with something. It's some so thing. over the top, and it doesn't fit. Like you said, you're right. It doesn't fit this movie, and it's annoying. And then then Lalo gets jobs doing other pictures after a while, and like, threw him off set until he got involved with the mission impossible reboot just like let's use a, a few keynotes but um and don't forget right. he also throws in some of that do 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 shit
0: in there and it's over the yeah. top you, you mixes it with like almost not disco yet but funk and I'm like what the hell or, you know you've seen it in black exploitation. you'll see it in other like films
1: of this ilk but Jeez, it was just cheesy. <laughs> it was cheesy, uh, that that that's that's one thing. Anna Capri interesting. Um she never really made it. Uh, she did a couple of oddball pictures. Um <sighs> odd casting choice here. Probably somebody's girlfriend or something mm-hmm. there. Uh, Bob Bob Wall, Jim Kelly, you know, Kudos, really good stuff, uh Bolo. In this, you know, I mean, supporting cat Jackie Chan's in this, I think. Uh, just show Yuan Bao. You know, uh Sammo Hung. You actually, once you know Jackie and Sammo are in this, you can spot them right away. Uh, Angela Mao, and yes, you and I have to go to Queens one day and meet Angela at a restaurant uh, before she dies. <laughs> then we'll say, well, we didn't get a chance to do that. Yep. So there's uh, that. Uh, I love Angela Mao, yeah. yeah. Yeah, she apparently sits at a restaurant. And if you go there and. We we set it up maybe you know we can talk to her for a few minutes. It's like sign my stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, she sounds like a very nice lady with a little chip. But uh, Enter the <laughs> Dragon a classic. And so Planet Earth.
0: Yes. It may be hard to believe to kids nowadays, but during the 70s, there was actually a long period where Star Trek was all but forgotten, and there was no Star Wars either. However, there was something happening on the college campuses of the mid to late 70s, where the more radically minded youth of the day were discovering and responding to the utopian idealism and generally left-leaning concepts of Star Trek, and were screening episodes on campus, catching them in syndicated reruns and so forth, Mm -hmm. to the point where the series became far more popular in retrospect than it ever was while it was on air. So seeing this, Gene Roddenberry did his damnedest to get the series back on air, only getting so far as the Filmation cartoon, which had most of the original cast contributing voices, until Star Trek The Motion Picture appeared at the very end of the decade. But in the meantime, he started vetting a replacement series, which only resulted in three very similar but increasingly less worthy pilots. Genesis 2 with Mariette Hartley, Ted Cassidy and his wife, Nigel Barrett, Planet Earth with John Saxon, Diana Muldauer and Ted Cassidy, and Strange New World also with Saxon. They were all essentially the same characters and milieu, just tweaked a bit each time to try to get the damn thing sold. Where Genesis 2 was more dreamy and relaxed, Planet Earth was more quote-unquote action and television-level sex, and Strange New World was more chaste action. Every time, arguably, it was to lesser effect, like I said. The most irritating part of this one is the first 10 or 15 minutes where Saxon, Cassidy, and the, quote, citizens of PAX, an underground city of pacifists with their own subway system who survived the nuclear holocaust, go to the surface and find themselves attacked by Mad Max-style warmongers, resulting in Saxon taking one down and about to stab him before throwing the knife away and turning his back on the guy. And nothing happens. And and when they escape into a, a locked access tunnel and find themselves shot at, Cassidy picks up one of the rifles to return fire, wanted to change his mind and smash the gun oh how idealistic please <laughs> about the only improvements here were the casting of saxon and this one's focus on the village of doms where he starts the resistance and brings things back from all this estrogenic feminist nonsense to more realistically equal if not traditional relations but the implications are still pretty kinky and if this were done by say a jess franco or a joe damato we may have had something much more interesting on our hands you don't talk like a property you certainly don't act like one even as is the interplay between the imperious moldau and the earthy Saxon make it a smirk-inducing hour and change worth of where Star Trek could have gone in the post plan of the age sci-fi of the mid-70s, which is really the best way to describe this one, with the racial metaphor being swapped out for a gender-politic one. It has its merits, definitely.
1: It, ha- it has merits. No, it does have merits. I'm glad to see Saxon headlining a TV uh, production like this, which could have led to a series, if, if received and handled properly. Odd odd things, I don't mind Cassie so much This, you know, he, instead of abusing his size and, and fame, they cast him as an actor who fit a role, which I liked. I liked that. Uh, problems I have with this are the, the female casting. I mean, you know, Major Barrett, uh, fame Star Trek Nymphomania <laughs> has a minor role in this, but uh, yes, we all know the story about Major. You can PM me if you don't know. Um... <laughs> Janet Margolin, who was like a schizophrenic actress who done some really good A-list films, and then after this and before, but was like thrown a bone, roles like this is in this. Diana Mulder, I always had problems with her. She was like somebody's tough lesbian sister. And I've got nothing against folks. I have nothing against anyone who's gay. But Diana Mulder com- always came across to me like your tough lesbian sister. <laughs> and so. And didn't and so, she become like a Bible
0: thumper? So I thought she did like Christian music afterwards in the 80s. It's possible.
1: I don't know about that. But it, it, in films of this time period, they tried to cast her as a sort of pseudo love interest. And she's like, your tough lesbian sister. <laughs> and it was like really difficult for me. You know, and, you know I'm fucking 13 years old at this time. I'm like. Wow, if I had a tough lesbian sister, she'd be it. Um, <laughs> except that they're trying to cast her as this like queen of the you know women chick thing, and it was it was a problem for Roddenberry because the first picture I think at uh, the first attempt had Alex Cord. Yes. Am I am I correct? That's I mean, correct. <laughs> if he's still, i was still a mess. Yep. <laughs> uh, Alex Cord was a. Uh, a hovering A-list actor who had a lot of issues. I I don't want to be mean. And um, bounced around genres and uh, bounced around a bunch of things and uh, could have been a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I believe alcoholism was really uh, one of his major issues. And they gave him a shot with their first version of this, which which you named earlier. So they, they brought John Saxon in for the revamp, as planet earth but they still didn't get it right so they brought saxon back again but we'll discuss that later so black christmas yeah this is a busy couple
0: of years for john so 74 same year black christmas bob clark who apparently kicked off his film career by directing something about a guy being blackmailed into being a drag queen by another drag queen seriously it's called she man i just saw it recently it's hilarious and was responsible for such genre favorites as children shouldn't play with dead things Death Dream, and Stallone's greatest film, Rhinestone, which we talk about in our Stallone show, also managed to drop this atmospheric proto-slasher before degenerating into crap like baby geniuses. With a Varkis
1: and rock- really? uh.
0: With a really odd cast that includes SCTV's Andrea Martin, Margot Kidder as a drunken, foul-mouthed sorority girl, and cute but irritatingly accented Olivia Hussey, this one's somewhere between Halloween and House and Sorority Row, but with a much darker Canuxploitation feel, which is only accented by the claustrophobic old dorm house and the snowy Yuletide settings. Is it as good as people tend to credit it with being? No and the kill is fairly predictable, though the weird phone calls he keeps doing reminds somewhat of the duck-quacking killer from Fox's New York Ripper. Saxon's the concerned cop investigating. Not a lot for him to do, but there's some character business and jokes to help his role feel meatier than it actually is. It's a good movie, especially if you're into early, less bloody slashers. It's just not the masterpiece of the genre people seem to think it is.
1: Uh, not a masterpiece, but I think it's much better than remake, and I don't know if you know, they're remaking it. they're remaking it again. It'll be due out... This late fall, a beer five years after the last one, after the last remake, uh, Bob Clark passed on, so it's, he, he has no involvement. I like this movie. No, not like I like this movie. You can sit there with a jar of liquor and go, like, I like this movie. But no, <laughs> sort of like, I like this movie. It, 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 it's it got a nice setting, a nice feel to it. It's got a nice feel to it. It's got a nice setting. You know, Christmas horror movies, uh, just the idea is like off-putting. Come on, let's all admit. It. Even the the fucking freakiest of all can say, "I like Christmas horror movies." Well, you're sick, fuck, go away. <laughs> no, but but this one has a ambiance to it that actually works. It's it, 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 it's primarily Canadian cast. Now Thanksgiving horrors are awesome, like the one with uh, Jake Steinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But. but <laughs> I mean, Kira DeLay, who I talked, about, I talked to about this film, and I don't want to go look, look up those, those comments, kind of liked it. Olivia Hussey, yes. Margot Kidder, this is pre-Superman, so pre-schizophrenia and pre-everything else. Uh, be right after Sisters, I think. Right after Sisters, yes. Um, Andrea Martin, so you and I were cementing the Canadian. The SETV, the whole connection there. You know, you know what I liked about this movie? It starts off with giddy giddy. They're already overaged. You know, if you guys follow me for years, if you if you know what I'm about, like I have to, I have to, like catchphrases. Overage teens. What does that mean? No, it's not porno stuff. It's like <laughs> like when you're watching these movies, like they cast women who passed their prime as teenagers. they I call them. Yeah, as, as overage teens, they're already obviously probably in their early 30s playing teenagers or their late 20s playing teenagers. But they, it's a well cast. I thought it was well cast. I think they did a good job. I mean, yeah, they're, they're obviously visually not correct, but. No. <laughs> I, I, but all the actresses were in high bitchy mode, so they were acting appropriately. You know, I didn't nail Kira DeLay as, as the killer. And uh, I, I didn't. I have to say, you know... It's... I thought they sort of telegraphed it, but okay. Well, you know, Then again, I watch a lot of slashers. Then again, I watch a lot of slashers, too. But, yo, know, this is like the first time I saw it.
0: You should have come on that slasherama I did with Tim Ritter years ago on Third Eye.
1: <laughs> no, no. I mean, we're, we're talking about the first few times I saw it. I was like, no, I don't think... I nails him as that. But then... But, yes, here's one thing that's key to the rest of our show. This is one of the first times, and it's going to be repeated. We'll see John Saxon as the blithering idiot law enforcement person becoming caring law enforcement person, becoming, shit, there's nothing I can do about this law enforcement person. (laughs) This is a key moment for him. (laughs) I hope this makes sense. But, yeah, it's like, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to call lots of people. He's always on the phone when I cut to him. to like, I think something's really going on here. <laughs> Until it's like, I don't know what to do
0: about this. <laughs> well, because he was on the phone so much and in the uh, police station, you know, not always, but a lot of the scenes, yeah. I felt like he was literally phoning it in, but not in the sense of like both Svensson phoning in his performances. It was more like he was... On a different location, and he had like, you know, 10 minutes in one day or something to do all his scenes.
1: Well, I didn't look at it that way, but it's my question, Mitchell.
0: Mitchell? So yes, next up Mitchell, we addressed this pinnacle in the film career of Joe Don Baker during a show dedicated to the man about a year back, where the beefy southern character actor gets one of his rare leading roles as the sweaty down-home police detective who's not above getting involved with, but then arresting, the same hooker for smoking grass. Saxon's the lesser half of Joe Don's problems in this enjoyable 70s cops film, a sleazy mob-connected lawyer who shoots down a robber in his house, but our man's convinced there's more to the story. He drops out for a bit while Joe Don makes a nuisance of himself to a local mobster's inside the tale but returns late in the film when it turns out he sent the hooker as part of a bribe to get him off his back. When our hero refuses, Saxon and the mobster join forces to take him out, resulting in an odd race car chase through the desert that ends up with Saxon going up in flames. I always love this film and I love the mystery science stand up of it even more so. This is the sort of film I revisit often, filled with unintentional laughs, good humor, a little mystery, action and suspense, and a whole lot of charm. So, you know, I'm definitely a Mitchell fan. I don't know if it does anything for John, but I definitely enjoy this one a hell of a lot as you probably already picked up from our the Joe Don Baker show.
1: Oh yeah, no, we we both like this as explaining our Joe Don Baker show. Yeah, it's like there are any special John Saxon moments in this? Uh, you know, special, I don't know. You kind of lined it up right. Linda Evans is in this. Yes. yes. want to make their uh, Linda Evans connections. <laughs> <laughs> there might be some people out there like, I want to see early movies of Linda Evans. So, there... <laughs> it's one of her better roles, I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got Martin Balsam in this as well. And, yo, know, yo. Know, it's. I enjoyed it. You really liked it. So we move on to...
0: Strange Shadows in an Empty Room, also known as Blazing Magnum. So, this one's a bit of an oddity all around. A wild, super violent police attach that's got more elements of jalo and mystery than usual, which since the second title. One that features John Saxon not as a mob boss, but as a cop, and even then as more of a silent part crusty, drunken old Stuart Whitman. There's a hilarious sequence where he has to drop by an apartment where a trio of drag queens live, and instead of information, we're talking about Whitman here, he gets a wild fight that leaves the place utterly trashed. Him hanging off the roof and one of them branded with a red hot curling iron. Boy, did he ever mess with the wrong queens. These guys like it rough. A few notables like martin landau gail honeycutt and tisa farrow drop by but it's mostly about whitman kicking ass like someone half his age and in much better heart and liver condition than he appears to be a tremendous amount of fun but don't go looking for a lot of john saxon in this one he's almost a bit player
1: yeah i agree with that but uh i I, you know if there's any Stuart whitman fans out there and we haven't done a Stuart whitman show yet (laughs) i don't know if we have well
0: we have to get really drunk to do that one just in honor of the man
1: (laughs) yeah we have to get like totally like Blithering, like, really. Pie eyed. <laughs> yes. Hey, that would be fun. We should do, like, a show, like, hey, are you awake? Uh, <laughs> you so... mean we haven't been doing that? <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Close. Not yet. Maybe our early years before we realize we have an audience. Stuart Whitman actually is pretty decent in this, I have to say. You might agree. He does proto ass-kicking in this oh yeah uh, john, a lot of it. John, yeah john saxon's like you know he's on the peripheral in this you know not really so memorable martin landau gail hannickett tisa farrow carol laurie i mean this is like so is the scotch like being handed around during the production
0: <laughs> <laughs> well tisa uh, farrow
1: we- you know the coke was <laughs> right right so which is really interesting is in Italy, this is marketed as a magnum special per Tony Sayeta, but in uh, English-speaking countries, it was marketed as a giallo, strange shadows in empty room. So it's definitely, they were trying, like, it wasn't the height of giallo craze, well, after that, 76, but they're really trying to get this, to, like, get tagged somewhere. didn't really work, but John Saxon's in it, and, you know, but he stayed in Italy for a while.
0: Yeah, did a couple of police One of which is violent Naples in the same year infamous cannibal zombie and slasher director Umberto Lenzi, who was one of the guys we discussed way back in our Italian sleaze show several years ago, amps up the brutality for yet another of his fortes, the police attachi. He did around ten of these in a relatively short period, but it's hard to say which of them is the worst offender. Only Fulci delivered nastier and more mean-spirited ones, and even he did it with a lot more visual flair. Here's Saxon's another slick and even-tempered bombster. The weapon of choice is a bowling ball to the face, and that's about it, really. Some kid gets set afire, but sadly it's saved to limp around at the end of the film for some insane reason. Saxon's looking for police protection from internecine mob scuffles and eventually does get hit on Merle's watch, but it doesn't feel like there's much of a straightforward plot to this one, more of a series of vignettes that explode in violence. It's okay, but you have probably seen better, and Saxon doesn't get much screen time at all.
1: Yeah, Saxon's screen time is limited, and that's. Well, our stars. is Maurizio Merle, who is the go to guy in this time period, and, uh, you know, Umberto Lindsay, who made some really nasty crime dramas during yeah you know, he's the director. He's a guy. Is it a time period where some Italian directors were stars? Like you saw their names on the on the poster? And that's why Regia, the Umberto Lenzi. That's why people went sometimes to so like, oh, Lenzi made this. You know. But yeah, you know, our our, our poster boy for tonight, John Saxon well, almost, uh, I would say, proto-forgettable type uh, in this movie. Uh, good lines in film. film, um, but there's a couple of these in a row. Yeah. He did the sequel
0: to one of those Mark films, Mark Strikes Again.
1: I don't know if I've seen this under
0: another title, but I'll say no. So if you got anything to say about it, go for it.
1: I did see this. I wasn't thrilled about it. Franco Gasparri really is the kind of actor who doesn't really get it, for, get it going for me. He was kind of like a hunky guy who was trying to do the the Maurizio Merli thing without the beard. Sorry, without the mustache, without the gravitas. Just trying to be like a, let's say, a hunky male model dude, you know, um... Yeah, and
0: we talked about Merrily during our Police Teshi show. He's kind of, if you haven't seen him, he looked like Franco Nero, which is kind of why they cast him. But he also had the personality of Dirty Harry.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Other players in this picture were John Steiner. Well, yeah, there you go. Paul <laughs> Mueller, Melissa Longo, who went on to do porn. And any Franco Gasparri movie, which always rang to be a lesser type of film. And Stelvio Masi, who was a decent filmmaker for action films, just never made it to the A-list. And, you know, have fought. Fred Williams was working for him in a couple of years. So uh, we got that. <laughs> uh, it's not a great picture by short, but a special cup in action is really good.
0: Here John's the head mafioso and really wide pinstripes whose, whose operation Italy's psychocop Cop Merley is out to take down. As ever he plays things relaxed and smooth, bringing a bit of style to a part too many guys take as an opportunity to really ham it up Randall fashion. When Merle pulls a nighttime solo raid on his place, there's a shootout. Saxon's boys hide the gun and Merle's set up as a rogue shooter taking aim at a defenseless businessman. He enters into a prison riot and has a hit on Merle but is easily foiled and the cops pull a fast one of their own, arranging for some bikers to land Saxon at a hospital, taking out most of his chiefs in a planned meeting he's too drugged to attend and then following him in his escape to close matters out. Amusingly enough, the film ends with both leads gunned down and drive-bys directed by the guy behind Zombie Holocaust Marino Girolamo, but Saxon doesn't really get that much screen time, all things considered.
1: Yeah, although Saxon doesn't get that much screen time, the t- screen time he has in this is certainly of enough of the genre and, yeah, Girolamo's a problematic filmmaker. Well, can we call him one? But... <laughs> But it's a strange movie, Maurizio. Yo, know, Maurizio Merli movies are very weird. Um, they're they're a genre unto themselves. Yeah, even among police they kind of make their own little niche, if you will. <laughs> yeah, they make yeah exactly. They make their own little niche. You know, Saxons in it, and and but it's like your eyes are focused on Merli, which is pretty much the same deal with. Cross like shot, oh, oh, cross yeah. shot. Yeah,
0: I didn't even see that one. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, cross shot where he's he's a police inspector, but you know his only the only thing he's bopping up against is Lee J. Cobb, who's brought in to play like a bus at the you know cap de capo. And even then, you know something's going on where Saxon's kind of downplayed in the movie posters, so. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it's a Stelvio Massey film again, and I mentioned Stelvio Massey earlier. It's just not a very good Stelvio Massey film. Um, This is also late 76, so we might be getting to the tail end of these Policio things. But there's a really good one coming up, uh, which is The Cynic, The Rat in the Fist. So, Seneca on a fist, Moritz O'Bron back
0: for a second round with Lindsay, and so Saxon. This time, they're both in the line of sight of the ridiculously monikered The Chinaman, who's actually the very non-Asian Thomas Millian, a gangster who just got a stir and wants to nail Murley and take over Saxon's rackets. For his part, Saxon gets another small but amusing role, almost the antithesis of his suave mob boss in Special Cop in Action, all paranoia and seething rage, cursing his head off, driving golf balls into people's heads, and generally abusing everyone in sight, even while running the show from a jail cell. At least is a damn sight more believable than the guy doing the kingpin
1: in the netflix daredevil series <laughs> so what's your take oh it's a, it's a, but it's a bit brutal it's a brutal it is another it's Lindsay's a, brutal yeah yeah well Lindsay's brutal right yeah but you know you have you have like a triumvirate here maurizio Merli, thomas million john saxon and a Lindsay picture and it's just and it's a crime thriller and so it's 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 a bit of a brutal one um it's all pointing to Pointing to 1977, released probably here in 78. So it's all pointing to a time period where these kind of movies were going away. We're going away, but yet starting to appear in Times Square, where they're, fo- they're making a following all of a sudden. Because the people in Times Square are like, what is this stuff? Yeah, so we're talking Times Square, 42nd Street, the deuce folks. And all of a sudden they're getting these things uh, sometimes cut down, sometimes dubbed in, well, always dubbed in English, but sometimes cut down uh, by the by the distributors for running time so they can jam two or three movies into a showing and all of a sudden it's like what is this you know what's going on very strange stuff
0: yeah it's kind of like what I was saying about Fright Night and Late Night TV back then we, you would get films that were a couple years old and maybe they, their time had already passed in their native countries or wherever it was in Europe or China or as the case may be And yet now they were just hitting here. Oh, the same thing happened even in the 90s with uh, the whole, actually started in the late 80s, the whole Hong Kong thing, and then Mm. the Japanese horror one, and then more recently the Korean horror one. These genres have more or less died off in their own home countries. But then you get them, wherever it is, three to ten years later. Oh, what's this? I want to see more of this. Yeah. So anyway, same year, seventy-seven. He's still doing more stuff. He did you mentioned before, Raid on Entebbe. I hadn't seen this once as a TV airing a childhood, but it's a famous TV movie with Charles Bronson about when some PLO terrorists hijacked a plane, landed it in Idi Amin's Uganda, and held the Jewish members of the plane for hostage. They, they actually let all the Gentiles go. It was that point that the Israelis pulled a daring raid during the Sabbath, just for the extra element of surprise, and freed almost all the remaining hundred or so hostages. Weird note: one of the guys involved in the operation who didn't survive it was related to that nut of uh, Yahoo's making headlines of Late. Uh, so is there anything you want to say about this one?
1: No, there's been a couple of... <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> anything you want to say about this one? No. No, it's just <laughs> like three or four of these things around the same time same time period. This is one of the more fun ones, even though it's one of the more lower-budgeted ones. Irving Kirshner, who did The Empire Strikes Back, believe it or not, two years later. Was he related to Don Kirshner, who did the rock concert back in <laughs> No, no, Irving Kershner did Empire Strikes Back two years later, which is the best of Star Wars films, directed this. Uh, We have a great cast. We have, like, Peter French, Bronson, Jeff Cotto, James Woods, Robert Loggia, Hearst Buchholz, Martin Balsam. Yes, I did say (laughs) (laughs) Hearst (laughs) Buchholz. Oh, Jen Saxon, Tyke Andrews, Eddie Constantine is in this. Alan Arbus, you remember that guy? James Woods is in this thing. Ty Gedges, wasn't he from the first season of uh... Rookies? And your favorite? Harvey Lundbeck. <laughs> Eric Von Zipper. Eric Zipper's Von here. Zipper. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I saw this. I remember nothing about it, so I'm sure it's a good film. I thought of doing a
0: beach party movie thing with you, but there's not too much you can say about them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yes, when we were doing the Elvis show, I was actually considering doing a beach party film. We show. could.
1: We could one day. It's more than just Frankie the and Annette. There's other films out there. but <laughs> I know that. I know that. We could. It, it, if you're serious, I can think about it. Yeah, we might do that someday for a laugh.
0: <laughs> so, Moonshine County Express, the first of two hillbilly action films John Saxon was in alongside the late Claudia Jennings, my favorite redhead of her day. But this one gives both of them a whole hell of a lot more screen time than the one that followed. Jennings is one of a trio of hillbilly sisters, the youngest of whom is fellow hottie Marsha Brady, Marie McCormick, whose shine-running pappy gets bumped off by two-ton rival William Conrad, hoping to kill the competition off literally and figuratively. But you know them Southern girls, they ain't going to go down easy, so when the harassment graduates to shooting their dog and killing off anyone who helps them out, they recruit John Saxon, a race car driver and former shine-runner, hey, just like the Dukes, to work for them. John looks like he's been working out here, but sadly a lot of the screen time and the budding romance for Saxon goes to the forgettable TV bit player and apparently eventual co-host of the 700 Club. Ugh. Susan Howard, who seems to become a force for hard-right politics in later years. Eesh. Couldn't they have dropped her sorry ass and just used Jennings and McCormick? That's all anyone really wants to see here anyway. <laughs>
1: well, what's interesting beside Candace Rielsen, who's in this, she's a bit player in here who did like lots of fun movies. Pets. <laughs> Pat and then pseudo-happy movies. Uh, we, we, we have, like, William Conrad from uh, Canon. Jeff Corey, Albert Sammy, who was, like, America's go-to in the early to mid-'70s. It's like, I don't know, how do we put it? Uh, uh, ethnics. Ethnics, but, you know, white American ethnic, you know, kind of like a MAGA type. And um, I don't know. I, I saw it. Yeah, Saxon looks good. He looks in good shape. I agree with you. It's a Corman release. I I think it was a good driving movie. I don't think it's a good fit. It did much for anybody. <laughs> which is why The Bees. Yes. So next year he
0: does The Bees. Weird Mexican take on the environmental nature strikes back horror. So popular back in the 70s. And which takes up the bulk of William Girdler's filmography to boot. Oddly minimalist bebop jazz plays throughout as a sort of ersatz soundtrack, but it's profoundly strange as if it's just... It's, it's saxophone and drums and comes and goes at random. This is the weirdest soundtrack you've ever heard in your life. Directed by Alfredo Zacharias, best known for doing a few capolina films, and that terrible demonoid messenger of death, delivers this pseudo-mystical nonsense about intelligent bees who are higher life forms than humans and want to take over the earth. You have to listen! You have to listen to what the bees have to say! John Saxon and the teacher in Little Cigar starlet herself, Angel Tompkins, are the weirdly open-minded scientists, put that in quotes, trying to mate African killer bees with normal ones to increase world honey supplies, with John Carradine doing a quick walk-on for booze. Why do I say weirdly open-minded? Because apparently their experiments have let the bees evolve to the point where he claims they delivered an ultimatum that, unless we stop obliterating their environment, they will eliminate mankind completely. You fools! You idiots! Now you leave them no choice! Yeah, this one is really fucking bad. But it's a laugh riot for all of its absurdities of construction, from script and dialogue to effects, and all the usual inane Irwin Allen-style disaster film dashed off character
1: bits and death sequences. Uh, it was fun when I saw it way back when. Uh, I didn't rewatch watch it for a show, because you can't possibly re-watch everything. <laughs> Angel Tompkins was in it, I remember that. Yeah, it's a very oddball movie. I saw once I saw a couple of times that Jack Hill was supposed to direct this, but it went to Alfredo Zacharias, who no stranger to oddball movies, so we we have that going for it. Not the worst they've ever seen of this kind of genre film, but certainly not the best.
0: So next year,
1: 1979,
0: Fast Company, a weird-ass anomaly in the filmography of David Cronenberg, better known for the interesting but disturbing body horror films like Shivers, Rabbit, and Videodrome. This one's about race car drivers, featuring of all people, craggy-faced bit player William Smith as the lead, even more unbelievably, that he could score with my favorite 70s redhead, Claudia Jennings. Basically, it's one of those white trash things that were so popular at the time, with all those Burt Reynolds films and the birds under Graham Parsons bringing country music back to prominence with the hippie crab. It's all about racing funny cars and stock cars. Smith's got one of those special engines that he keeps working on, but while it does make the car run faster, it also tends to blow up. This causes problems with his sponsor, the titular Fast Company Oil, whose rep is, of course, our boy John Saxon, as do his subsequent run-ins with media insulting sponsors, and generally being surly. This makes him dump his ass bring in another guy to drive his car, which means fist fights, a car theft to get it back, double-crosses, and even an attempted murder when they put oil in Smith's team lane that backfires on their own guy, until he finally drops the shady sponsor at the end. Well... It's watchable enough if you don't mind this sort of down-home NASCAR-and-hit-the-bar-in-middle-and-southern-America bullshit. But don't blame me if you start craving pork rinds and find yourself at regular Stucky's in the Piggly Wiggly, or maybe working at a Stu Leonard's while stocking up on DVDs of Hee Haw. I'm not sure where the hell Cronenberg's head was in here, but it was apparently some personal thing of his.
1: Yeehaw! (laughs) Well, he was probably, uh, you know, a starting out filmmaker, and I'm sure probably this kind of thing was popular in Canada at the time. But this was actually personal for him. He loved this stuff, stock car racing. Oh, well, there's that. And, <laughs> and it was popular. And so, yeah, look at this cast. Claudia Jennings. Nicholas Campbell. Was not he the first Spider-Man? That was Nicholas Hammond. Oh, course. Well, he could have been the first Spider-Man, but nobody I know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I saw this thing a long time ago, and I was like, it's okay. It's cool to see William Smith in the kind of role we don't usually associate him with. But this was the thing for John Saxon, because we started seeing John Saxon in enrolls in roles as a sort of, uh, uh, how do you put it? Uh, baddie. Author- no, not, well, I wouldn't say baddie, but like authority figure with connections against our hero. So sort of like anti, where he was like sort of bordering on heroic status. He started be- becoming anti- anti-hero for a while.
0: So next up, same year, The Glove. You won't have a soul left to sell, it's your one-way ticket to hell. though no, you can't escape from the kiss and rape of the glove. My all-time favorite cheesy movie theme song kicks off this fun black exploitation revenge film starring knitting Giants-Rams linebacker Rosie Greer of The Thing With Two Heads fame as an ex-con who dons riot gear in a metal-plated hockey goalie glove to take down all the COs who beat on him when he was doing time. You don't shoot nobody bad. You don't beg. You're about halfway straight, and I knew we could work this out. John Saxon's a schlub single father of a skip tracer. Hey, just like Isaac Hayes and Truck Turner, who works with crusty old bail bondsman Keenan Hell Satan Win to bring in men who bounce checks, old lady bookies, Welching butchers, and unfortunately for him, an unusually big score in Greer. I got a bottle of wine, cheap like me. Rosie's comes off a hot girlfriend and a respectable old soul singing voice, and the two of them build a running, pleasant, phone relationship until they finally meet up for the final showdown at Rufus's apartment building, and they wind up bonding even further after the big fight. Hollywood bit players and aging vets like Joan Blondell, Aldo Ray, and Michael Pataki are poking around the cast, but it's more about our two leads, both of whom do a pretty credible job. One of the few directing credits from bit player Russ Hagen, but it's a good one. I always enjoyed this film.
1: Oh, it's so cheesy. <laughs> yes it is it's a very cheesy movie and um but the theme song didn't kill you <laughs> Now ross Hagen who wound up working with uh fred Ray and became a fred olembray c c great player sorry fred <laughs> i don't know i i, I saw this a, a couple of times and it was like well there's a there's an interesting story going on here but it's just like we're already c great Level and we're bringing some actors down to appearance, like Joanna Cast, who surprisingly enough would get a a, a, a a boost with Blade Runner. But she's with Aldo Ray, Keenan Wynn, you know, Rosie Greer. And even though John Saxon's our star here, he looks like he's slumming. And, and you know, it's just like a little too early to slum like this for him, but it's, it's entertaining. Uh, Gary Graver, you know, was a cinematographer on this, so it does look good to yeah, like that. Gary directed actually a lot of a lot of adult films under pseudonyms. Everybody knows it's no secret. The fact that it was re-released to DVD by Trauma years later uh, kind of screams out like this is a cheap production. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, mm-hmm. Beyond Evil, 1980. The long and short of this one:
0: well-off white couple ripped off by sleazy Filipino. Seriously. John Saxon, inexplicably married to the annoying Linda Day George, is supposed to move down there to continue his architectural work alongside his local partner, Dell, who looks a lot like Henry Silva. The guy promised a couple of nice new condominiums, but when they get there, he puts them up in a hotel. The condo's not even finished building yet oh, but really I was going to move you here instead and it's a fucking haunted house complete with a witch and her husband who murdered each other there. Of course, the longer they stay there, the more she gets into the occult and starts murdering people. Gee, I wonder if it's the ghost of the witch who's taking over her persona. Yeah, don't trust business contacts in the third world. That's the moral of this one. This one's very Philippines, so you get some nice location footage and I could swear I saw a Daughters of Satan's Tana Guthrie on one quick cameo. But it's super low budget and the trauma DVD it came over on is so dark and blurry. It's like they forgot to use lighting and Smeared the lens with Crisco. If this were done a decade earlier, it would have been a far better affair than it is. As it stands, it's meh at best. Despite getting a reasonable bit of screen time, Saxon doesn't get much to do beyond play the concerned husband. Tom Selleck was so much more the man of action in a very similar role, speaking of Doors of Satan. And was a lot more sex there to boot, which shows just how poorly this one fares by comparison.
1: It is really interesting that for a movie shot in the Philippines, this has like no key Filipino character actor in small parts um i mean usually you know we see uh victor Vic, thank you Vic D S, you know like a bunch of familiar you know bunch of familiar faces from that time period but none of these guys show up in this so it's just like an all oh, they must have went through another production company or whatever uh even the, the production company like herb free doesn't it sound like somebody from like i love lucy A herb free production it's like it's just like who the fuck is that <laughs> so they could have went down there as like also ran a production company because there's just nobody that I I see a lot of Filipino films in this time period and I don't recognize any of these people in the picture. Same here. Yeah, same. Yeah, same for you. I'm sure I can speak for you on this. For some oddball reason, though, this movie has a hell of a following. Mm. And. Video Syndrome are putting out a special edition Blu-ray of this soon. <laughs> they
0: tend to dig through the trauma archives anyway.
1: Well, it could be. It could be. But it wasn't a trauma picture. I think it was a trauma pickup. It was Entertainment Venture International, EVI. I remember them uh, briefly during this time period. They were released movies. It, it was it was too saucy to be a TV movie, but too outre to be a, a cable picture. But it was too mild to be a theatrical release. So if that makes sense to you, and I hope it does, that's why it was like in between all worlds. You know?
0: Yeah, it's, it's too little of so much and then too much of right, everything. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. a very strange picture. You,
1: you, you couldn't get a theatrical out of it because it was too tame. You couldn't get a cable out of it because there was nothing to really entice people to want to watch it. And you, it was too saucy to be a, a late night TV show.
0: Next, 1980, same year, Cannibal Apocalypse. crazy Vietnam War film with a relevant subtext about PTSD that goes batshit by turning the psychological traumas of that decidedly unusual war into a cannibalism-by-virus modern zombie film. Saxon is a vet who, in freeing some POWs caged in a Viet pit, winds up bitten by one of these cannibal soldiers, none other than the much put upon John Morgan, who we interviewed in the very first Third Eye podcast. I hear he's having some serious financial issues lately, so drop him a line if you can help now. I think he set up a PayPal or a GoFundMe recently. Anyway, the virus seems to have remained durable for five or ten years, because Morgan's back in society as a drifter type, and Saxon's married to bit player Elizabeth Turner, Fulci's The Psychic, and Diodato's Waves of Lust. Apparently, sexual desire arouses the cannibal in both of them, and Saxon's case with a pudgy but precocious cocious and very interested neighbor girl and in Morgan's two teens getting it on the theater during a cheap Italian war movie of course Morgan goes the full monty resulting in a chase from a biker gang into an abandoned indoor flea market full of military gear Saxon's wife calls him in on this and as a friend fellow vet he manages to get Morgan to stand down and of course this means the entire hospital he's taken to is about to be infected as is one of the bikers who accost him during their arrest. all while Saxon himself is there getting checked up after almost losing it with the neighbor earlier and wonder if he's going as nuts as Morgan is before you know it two of them are on the run and hiding out in the and Saxon has to kill off both himself and his wife to prevent the infection from spreading, only to have the usual twist ending with the pudgy neighbor. Is it fun? Hell no, it's dark and serious in its own bizarre and delirious way. But it is one of those Italian genre films that if you have the stomach for them, you should really see? Definitely, and it's certainly one of the Saxon's most substantive leading roles.
1: Uh, certainly one of Saxon's most subst- substantive leading roles. Not a Margarita film I like, and there's <laughs> quite a few I'm ambivalent about. But this is unlike any Marguerite film he ever made before uh, until his demise. And I guess he was feeding into the whole, you know, Lindsay. uh, What was that movie? Uh, Cannibal Ferox. No, no. The one with Lindsay where they come off the plane. um, uh, Nightmare City. Nightmare City. Yes. It's just has the feeling of that. So, you know, he wanted to put a little deer hunter in there. So he's like, oh, we have these Vietnam vets that were treated harshly. And because of some of the things they, they went through, some of them became cannibals. It's a strange movie. And less than midway through it, it becomes just like authorities versus these rampaging cannibals. And they, the more people they bite, they too become the infected. John Saxon, when I talked to him, had a lot to say about this. (laughs) He he never really did. This is not the movie he signed on for. He already signed on for another film. I I will encapsulate it to these, these words. When I finally realized what was going on, what kind of movie it was, what kind of movie I was really working on, I just decided to go through with it and finish my role because this is not what I really wanted to do. This is not the film I signed on for. Saxon's really, that being said, Saxon's really good in it. Uh, he, he has moments of pathos. He has moments of, well, they engineer it such. You know, he has moments where he's this killer fucking leader of this team of cannibal zombie guys. I, I just don't like this movie. I never really liked this movie. And I like a lot of these movies in this canon and this theme. This one, I don't. And I can't pinpoint why. And I like this actor, but it's just, again, I just, something didn't gel, didn't coalesce here. And
0: speaking of films that something didn't work with John Saxon, same year, Battle Beyond the Stars, cheap-ass Star Wars knockoff where Saxon's the Dark Vader analog, and John Boy Walton Richard Thomason as enormous spatial mole is the Skywalker. He runs around gathering a seven samurai-slash-magnificent seven team of oddballs and mercenaries like Robert Vaughn, the slick hitman, George Papard, the dopey cowpoke, and Sybil Danning, the xenotype, to save his farm town, I mean planet, from Vader, I mean John Saxon. I liked it as a kid, and it does have some watchability factor. But it's nothing to run out and see if you haven't already built some youthful affection towards it. Which is something you can say about most Corrin productions, sci-fi or not. And John's barely in the damn thing.
1: Yeah, yeah when you're young and you see stuff like this, like, oh, it's fun. Look at that. It's like a cheap Star Wars type thing. Better though, the, than those Alphonse Brescia things. Al <laughs> things. But, uh, you know, it was like, who's Jimmy T. Murakami? You know, he's like a, a Carmen... Go-to guy. John C. Hill wrote the screenplay for this. Can you believe that? Uh, I mean, it has a lot of big familiar names. You know, Richard Thomas, Robert Vaughn, George Pappard, Sybil Danning, Darlene Pflugel was familiar at the time. James Horner, who did some great Star Trek scores for the feature films. But this thing is a mess. It's cheap. It's cheesy. <laughs> and and John Saxon sitting there with a, a embellished facial makeup coming across as like this evil warlord guy in space it's just like <laughs> oh, oh no yeah
0: it's kind of the beginning of some really iffy roles for him in the decade to follow.
1: I agree. Yes, I agree. Same
0: year again. Running Scared. John Saxon turns up in the damnedest things. This one's a surprisingly good film that you've probably never heard of, especially after Peter Hyams dropped that great Billy Crystal Gregory Hines buddy cop film by the same title a few years later. This running scared is the one with Judge Reinhold and Ken Wall from Wise Guy as two military getting back from duty in Panama. They bribe their way into a free ride home, but they're dumb enough to take photos while they make a surprise stop down at a revolutionary military base around Cuba, and then leave photos of themselves in the plane when they get home. So, for the rest of the film, these two dopes and this Jamie Lee Curtis looking motherfucker named Annie McEnroe, also the free spirit who screwed Michael Caine in his cabin in the hand, if those who listen to our Michael Caine show, wind up on the run all around the <laughs> lovely state of Florida from wait for it, John Saxon as a Cuban. Anti Castro revolutionaries and some schleps from our government who have been covertly supplying them because they think our heroes are commie spies. Boy, lucky thing they're also thieves and stole creative a crate of military hardware as a memento of their time in the service. Many chase scenes and explosions ensue along with some difficult run-ins with family members and friends who've seen them land based on the news. And there's a lot of great hunt and chase sequences, like the one on Everglades with those motorized skiffs, like you see in Bilgerface's Sting of Death. Did a great career-length interview with him over at Third Eye Cinema, for those interested. But Saxon's barely in it, turning up about the hour mark, and only seen briefly, once or twice more. I think his total screen time sums up to about four and a half minutes. It doesn't matter, though. This one's a real corker, and I do highly recommend it.
1: I, I didn't see this uh, for the show. I screwed up and I watched the uh, Gregory Hines running. Scare. Oh, I love that one. And, and I said, hey, he's not in this. But I continued to watch it anyway enjoyed it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a good film. Both Burning Scares are really good.
1: <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I, I watched the wrong film for this uh, show. And, uh, Understand. I, I was unable to find this one. Uh, I, I know it exists. but uh, So when we do. When we do a Gregory Hines, Mikhail Baryshnikov show. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, they were in a movie together.
0: <laughs> they
1: just they did. They did a movie together. Uh, was that White Nights? They did White Nights. Yeah. And Running Scare was Gregory. And who was the other guy? Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal. People. It wasn't bad, though. No, it was great. I love that movie. <laughs> so I was like, sort of like, hey, you know what? I don't I don't I don't see our guy in this movie but <laughs> But it's fun. <laughs> uh, so I apologize to fans who wanted me to chime in on this one, but no they ain't gonna happen. Go so
0: now he starts moving from those police attaches and whatever else, and even his TV work to some extent into a whole bunch of slashers. Nineteen eighty one is Blood Beach. Jaws sure did result in some odd rip-offs. Having finished with sharks, barracuda, piranha, killer whales, and even mutated fishmen, some intrepid producer fished around for a new idea. What other menace can we come up with at Seaside that's not just another evil fish? Cue Blood Beach, an enjoyable 1981 horror oddity that crosses some of the feel and approach of the boogans with a very Jaws template. Saxon's the beleaguered police captain who's being hung out to drive by rich patrons and officious town council types alike, failing to solve a rash of bizarre beachside attacks and disappearances of homeless bums in Santa Monica. There's a great line in this that slams Republican politics. This is apparently pre-privatization everywhere. You were one of the loudest supporters of our glorious Proposition 13, which, while assuring you another term in office, just about cut the twigs and berries off the police department. Every one of you miserable suck-ups is the same. You want what you want, but when it comes to paying for it, all of a sudden you go deaf, dumb, and blind. You get what you pay for. So if any of you crotch buddies thinks that me and my men are going to go on protecting and serving a bunch of amen snorters like you, you better start forking over the coin. And then the little Italian detective says, Chica Gore Tutto Mele. Effectively, how you like them apples? Stupid, but it's fun and atmospheric, and it works. I'm surprised it's not on cleaned-up Blu-ray over here.
1: Yeah, not, not yet. It's not on Blu-ray, uh, not yet. Uh, yeah, it's got a lot of fun people, eh? Uh Mariana Hill, uh, people people should uh, Google her. She was like, a go-to person for a while, and she could have been the next big thing. And for some unknown reason, disappeared. Burt Young, Rocky. Rocky, and the series is in this. Um, it's a fun movie. Uh, it's it's. I think one one of the key things is like I don't know where, one <laughs> month sure decide to co-produce this. i was like. <laughs> Really? The Shaw Brothers? Yes, that Ramon on Shaw. Uh, it's just bizarre. It's a little off kilter. Uh, Jeffrey Bloom was a uh, filmmaker, didn't make too many movies, but those they did. A little like tongue in cheek or tongue through cheek. Fun stuff. Uh, it's worth a look.
0: So in uh, 1982, he does a couple of Italian things again. Scorpion with Two Tails, it's a weird, wow. weird Italian horror from Sergio Martino that brings likable Fulci regular Paolo Malco, Argento ex Mario Lutolo, Martino regular Claudio Casanelli who'd later get killed during a helicopter stunt in Martino's Hand of Steel, Batman TV series The Minstrel Van Johnson, and LaVille Audrey of Amazonia, Iron Master, and Kinski's Nosferatu in Venice as our lead. Hard to believe that this was originally planned as an eight-episode TV series edited down to a feature film, but there's an intro and a few scenes from another the dvd so they did exist the film's odd in the way that so many italian films are but it's hardly as disjointed as you expect from a four-hour tv series whittled down to an hour and a half so it's clear there was either a lot of fluff involved or they did a good job with the rewrites either way you get an extra 20 minutes of footage in the extras and most of that's people looking around with their mouths hanging open so the fluff angle is probably all they need to chop Audrey's often stunning in that ethereal French way. Malco's always a welcome presence, in this case as the love interest and cop who accompanies her in the search for the truth. Saxon's only in it for the first few minutes as the husband and archaeologist studying the Etruscan tombs, who winds up killed in a ritualistic manner, and the rest of it is her heading out to Italy to find answers. Like a lot of Martino films, it's shot under cheesecloth in that patented 80's Italian cinema way. And it's a bit cold, while enjoyable enough, it's kind of stiff, particularly by comparison to stuff like Fulci, Argento, Theodato, Castellari, and even more second tier types like Bianchi, D'Amato, and Lenzi. I'm met the man, and you have to wonder how his brother was married to Edward Fennec in her prime, because he's so icy and rigid, and this plays out in the cinema as well. I still liked it, but I'm huge on Eurocult cinema, so I may not be the best arbiter for these sort of films. I mean, I even enjoy the cannibal non-sploitation and Nazi exploitation ones more than a person probably should, so me saying that I enjoy this one probably doesn't mean that much.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, it's supposed to be a miniseries, which I haven't seen. I believe it does exist as a miniseries version. I generally like Martino films, it's got a cast that's like way heavy on lots of ends, the Tainan end, and lots of interesting people. You know, Juan one segida, Ben Johnson, blah blah blah. I thought it was okay. I wasn't that thrilled with it. I thought it was kind of TV-ish because it was this- supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. It's cut down. It was supposed to be a cut-down TV thing. So I noticed though. Are you going to cover Wrong Is Right? Uh, no because you you passed that on the connery film and being a big politico that you are i'm surprised you did that then yeah i never saw it yeah it's a richard brooks film same year so violence has become the uh national sports and television thing you're sort of like a running man and rollerball and rollerball and so a news reporter sean connery Branches into Arab countries to interview the president of that country. And so then it becomes involved. Like this is vast political uh, 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 intrigue going on. This has a phenomenal cast, little seen movie because it was buried upon release. And it's it's very hard to see today. And so we have Sean Connery as the news reporter, wise-ass motherfucker, Robert Conrad as a U.S. general, George Grizzard as president, Catherine Ross, who was the thing back in late 60s, John Saxon, Henry Silva, Leslie Nielsen, Harvey Kruger, Robert Weber, Dean Stockwell, Jennifer Jason Leigh. I mean, this is an amazing political film that is so underseen, especially by Connery people. Like, if you didn't see it when it came out, it's, it's hard to see. Yeah, that's the part why I never saw it. Yeah, it's called Wrong is Right. It's about media, politics, and perception. Interesting.
0: So uh, same year, 1982, he does Tenebrae for Agenda. Yes. Saxon's the Fedora prone, overly effusive press agent for Tony Franciosa's likable horror novelist. Darian Nicolotti's typically radiant as his personal secretary. Stunning and Nea Pieroni of Inferno and House by the Cemetery is the first victim. Beefy but hot Marilla Bonte of the Jallo released here as Blind Date is next up. <laughs> then cute Laura Wendell of DeLeo's Manhunt in the City, my dear killer, perfuming Lady Black, Killing Birds and Ghost House. Berlusconi's hot wife, Veronica Lario, is Rancius' bitter ex, who's also canoodling with Saxon. As you can see, this is the most oddly sexual of Argento's films, with the largest batch of really hot women, of course, most whining of his victims, but even so. Even my favorite early 90s starlet Teresa Russell took part, in a way, doing the English dub for Daria Nicolodi here. So that's her voice. It's a fascinating double blind of a film, and there's this whole homoerotic gender-bender subtext that isn't even addressed in the script, where one of the killers is acting out her repressed trauma related to a girl in red shoes, who's actually a weirdly convincing drag queen Eva Robbins also of Cozy's Hercules apparently Argento wrote this partly as a response to his critics and partly due to some weird fan letters he was getting at the time which says quite a lot about him if you've seen the film and we talked about this during our Argento show way back when oddly brightly lit with most murders set in daytime and with weirdly empty streets with modernistic almost Bauhaus homes and buildings but it works and it throws all this overt sexuality and perversion being tossed around into bold relief if this were done by someone with less of a complex, like a Joe D'Amato, for example, this could have been a really erotically charged film. As it stands, it sort of is, but in a twisted puritanical Catholic guilt and repression sort of murderous penetration way like so much American film and television winds up being. The sexual charge is very European. The boldness of color in opera acting bombast is very Italian. But the underlying conservative politics is disturbingly American, which is a real conundrum with a director like Argento, and especially with regards to this film. While I do strongly prefer the supernatural occultic charge of Inferno, and I think both Deep Red and the Italian version of Non sonno* are stronger as jolly, Tenebrae and Opera have somehow shaken out over the years. to be definite favorites of mine, not just of Argento's films, but of Italian genre cinema as a whole. I really do like this film, and I liked it even more watching it again recently.
1: Oh, I really do like this film too. I, I always like this film. And, and uh, ninety, gosh, ninety three, ninety four. Argento was in New York at the some Queens Museum, uh, Queen uh, American Cinematheque thingy, to show his version of this movie. And I was in attendance. He was there too. I actually got a, I got to meet him then, and I was like, wow. I was blown away because it was the first time we got to see that long take Luma shot. And if if people don't know what I'm talking about, if there's a shot in the movie that's just shot from a crane and just goes, they call it Luma because it was like just shot and just followed this. It goes on for like, I don't know, a couple of minutes. And it's just amazing, amazing. And I like this movie. Uh, Even Robinson's hot. I don't care. And, uh... It's weird. It's really strange to say, but this is the most
0: convincing tranny you've ever seen in your life. And in a cast of women that are, like,
1: You're stunning. Doing, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that, but it's like, you know, there's a cast of stunning women, and here's this, like, convincing tranny in the middle of it. I'm like, okay, whatever fits, I guess. Yeah, okay,
1: whatever. <laughs> the wife's going to CinemaCon, whatever it's called. <laughs> Hi, are you Eva Rubbs? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. Like wow, I had a really good time. Uh, So
0: (laughs) you discovered things about yourself you didn't know.
1: You never know things. Uh, (laughs) We were talking about cruising last time. (laughs) We were, we were. were. It's Tony Franciosa's really goodness. Uh, Another gender confused person. Yes. Uh, and it, it falls into the plot. Actually, a lot of the characters in this film are gender-confused. If you really, really think about it, John Steiner, who, who would be obvious to some people, but, you know, if you're following the plot of the film, is a gender-confused character. A, a great deal of, of the characters in this Argento film, Tenebrae, are gender-confused.
0: Yeah, there's definitely some lesbian
1: couples. There's Daria Nicolodi herself, who's always doing a mannish role. Right, and and in a way, in Argento's version of reality and his version of penance and paying for things, which I think probably led to his final split with Daria after this film, was the, uh, although they they briefly reunited for uh, opera. was Yeah, and you saw what he did to her there. Right, you saw what he did to her there. (laughs) (laughs) was, well, people pay for their confusion, you know. He's trying to say a lot without actually opting in on a definite purpose. But I, I definitely like this film a lot. Uh, it gets a lot of a lot of blowback for... It's conservative underpinnings, like I pointed out. There's, there's it a tension conser- there. It has conservative, conservative underpinnings. Uh, it gets a lot of blowback, too, for his misanthropy. Uh, it gets a lot of blowback for his uh, implied misogyny, but I, I don't see that there.
0: And this is from a guy that was known to be an anarchist, you know, just like yes. Gary Nickelodeon was. So it's strange. It's very – things are fighting against themselves in everything he does and right. in this film in particular.
1: He's, yeah, he's fighting against himself. This is a prime example of that. And, it's and, and you, know, this, you know, I have to say this is like some of Franciosa's best work is in this movie. True. Definitely. Tony Franciosa, Anthony Franciosa, some of his best work is in this movie. John Saxon, in a, some could say a blow-off part, delivers fine work. Yeah, it's a supporting
0: role, but he does. yeah, you definitely notice him there, and he's not, yeah. he doesn't yeah. phone it in.
1: He doesn't phone it in, and then there's a surprising thing going on there, too, and it's like, oh, okay, we didn't see that coming. Definitely a more coherent Argento film for a while, and I really like this movie, and, and, uh... I triumph it. I want I want more people to see it. It's really good. Please try to see it as in as, as best of uncut version as you can
0: definitely. So, now he does mostly slashers. He does A Nightmare on Elm Street in 84. One of his usual bit part roles of this period here is the cop-slash-father of our final girl, Heather Langenkamp, who's keeping the big secret about Freddy Krueger from his daughter while failing to follow the trail to all the teenager dream slangs. It's okay, but it has a much better reputation than it ever deserved, and kicks off, honestly, one of the lesser slasher series. While Halloween certainly had its share of stinkers along the way, there's just no comparing these oddball and increasingly surrealistic comedy-slash-fantasy slashers to a solid series like Friday the 13th, before Sony dug its sinister claws into that one and turned comparative gold to turds overnight. And just jumping ahead, he's actually also in the third one in the series, Dream Warriors, in 87, which finds Langenkamp as a shrink who's using crazy kids at the local bug house to take down Freddy through lucid dreaming. This is the film that all the metalheads went to see that year, only to hear the Dawkins song they postponed to the end credits. These days, a lot of folks wait till the very end for one of those superhero movie Easter egg bits, but that used to be a rarity. So it was a weird anecdote to note that the theater was packed with long hairs, none of whom budged until the lights came up. And weirder the single. remember those? The B-side was Back for the Attack, a killer track that, bizarrely, didn't land on the album that was named after it, which, by the way, sucked big time anyway. Doc and fans are better blessed to give up on the band after the single. Anyway, Saxons in the film, even less than last time around, first encountered sousing it up at the local bar, then accompanying body doubles Nebbishy Lee, Craig Wasson, to the local junkyard to find the burned remains of Freddy Krueger, which is still there, in the trunk of a 59 Caddy. This is in the 80s, remember? So they can bury it and put him to rest until the next film rolls around. Freddy's cheap animatronic skeleton impales him on the tail fins of the car, but his ghost visits for a fond farewell with the usual surprise twist, and then it's pretty much the end of the story. Larry Fishburne has an early role. That's really all you can say about these stuff.
1: What's your take? Uh, I, I you know the the first two Nightmare in Elm Street and Saxon sort of akin to the first Halloween film, but what you had the sheriff there. You no, know, it's it's uh I forgot the actor's name and uh, I, I forgot his name, but uh, you know, it's it's a serviceable role. It's it's warming. It's a presence. Um, but what he really liked was what Wes Wes Craven did with him in '94 when he made the meta Wes Craven's new Nightmare. Where he had the actors play themselves and their characters. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I think John Saxon are really good with that.
0: Hands of Steel came in the middle of this in 86. Mm, it did. Here, John's the head baddie who created a cyborg, sort of Universal Soldier-esque, speaking of our Van Damme show, in that he's still part human and on the run. Janet Agron pops up briefly as a truck stop motel owner who gives him a job chopping wood. Of course, he does a forest worth in no time. George Eastman dressed by as a belligerent drunk whose idea of starting a bar fight is turning the film briefly into over-the-top. That's right, it's now it's all about extra-dangerous arm wrestling with snakes and glass. It's one big 80s Italian mess. A lot of folks seem to rate this one highly, but it's like stuff that's been trickling out more recently like Shocking Dark or Emmanuel Francois. It seems like we're starting to scrape the bottom of the genre barrel at this point with films that have just enough Italian cult film to sort of work, but hard to the extent of the kind of exploitation films we've been celebrating over the years. It's more like American Z films done with a few recognizable faces. The Oddity ramped up a few notches. And as such, really shouldn't go very highly on anyone's shopping list.
1: I remember Hands of Steel being very... Boring.
0: Eh. Yeah. <laughs> Americanized.
1: Yeah, you know, you, know, you had Saxon leading this uh, cadre of guys going after this uh, cyber person. And, um... <sighs> It was all bluff and bravado, and but but yeah, you know, he's fine for the role. So it's just like, but did the movie really impress? No, it started to become lesser in that whole genre of sci-fi, Italian sci-fi, post-apocalyptic nonsense. Mm-hmm.
0: So, 1988, Nightmare Beach. He goes back to the cop roles once again, this time for Lindsay's Welcome to Spring Break, a.k.a. Nightmare Beach, one of those cheap Italian slasher films that feels more American than not, like the same director's Hitcher in the Dark or Diodato's Body Count. This time there's a supernatural subtext. Is the biker going around murdering obnoxious drunken teenagers really the ghost of an executed felon? Or is it the crazy drunken priest going around lecturing them about being sinners? Like, Dial Help, there's a few interesting murders, and like a lot of times, time General films in this era, there's a low-rent, heavy metal soundtrack, but while I can't say it's not entertaining, it's far from a must-see. Unless, that is, you want to see all the absurd, quote, fun bits with the teens, like the guy who goes around in the surf with a shark suit, or the guy who covers himself in blood and pretends to be dead in the pool, the pervert hotelier who peeps in on half-dressed girls, or all the run-ins with a decidedly low-rent Latino biker gang, who at one point even take over the local police station. Saxon really only shows up to threaten the kids or browbeat the bikers who wind up gunning them down and dragging them behind their bikes with a chain, never to be seen again in the film. These are like the films we talked about in our Italian sleaze show way back when. Loads of fun if you're hooked on Italian genre film but not even in a second tier of stuff to check out. It's not bottom of the barrel. It still has plenty of weird entertainment value, but you could do much better than this.
1: I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. And uh, it was, for me, it was a... Signal of the kind of pictures that the the directors that we had so much admired, more or less, uh, were making around this time period. You know, when they finally got around to seeing Welcome to Spring Break, uh, aka Nightmare Beach, not too long after its production time, I was like, what is this? And why are you doing this? And I just didn't like it. Diodato is still doing this stuff. Still? Uh, I, yeah, he just did a new one, which is on Amazon Prime. And they're making a big thing out, uh, directed by Ruggiero, Diodato. It looks like the same thing. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just disheartening after a while. It's just like we can't – I don't know. I didn't like it. I didn't like what they did with Saxon's character. But then he got paid. So. Yeah. so, And that takes us to the end of the 80s. And unless you
0: acknowledge that they actually made a Beverly Hills Cup 3 in the mid-90s, I had no idea such a thing existed. Or care about either Wes Craven's new nightmare, which you had mentioned, or Robert Rodriguez's bloody-but-tongue-in-cheek vampire gore fest from Dust Till Dawn. Those are the last films of note the man did. I mean, he has kept working on occasion. Like I mentioned, we saw him doing the convention circuit many years back. He had a strong career for a lot of years, but then he kind of peters off in the 90s and the 2000s. I think he's still occasionally working but it's a lot more rare than it used to be.
1: Yeah, yeah. So John Landis, who did Beverly Hills Cop 3, which a lot of people don't like, which I thought was fine. I I don't understand the hatred for this movie. It was fine. Uh, You know, we we had Hector Elizondo, Judge Reinhold, Teresa Randall, Alan Young, yes, that one. Stephen McCaddy, Bronson Pinchot, playing the same role he played in all three of those pictures. John Saxon was the, the baddie. He was the villain. So it's like back up to A-list status. It made a ton of freaking money. It was a fine addition to the Beverly Hills Cop series. I don't understand the hatred for this one. I thought it was fine. I thought it was okay. Uh, I mentioned Wes Craven's new Nightmare a year later, 94, where Wes Craven brought back each actor, even C- England to play Freddy Krueger as well as Robert Englund, Heather Kent as well as to play the character, John to play as well as the sheriff and they had like it was very difficult film to watch but it really was a lot of fun probably one of Wes Craven's best films it probably look go back two years later as hey you know this is a lot better than i remember from dust to dawn is a robert rodriguez film written by tarantino starring tarantino and george clooney with a shitload of really cool people we had like Juliette Lewis, Sam Hayek, Chich Marin, Danny Trejo, Tom Sabini, Fred Williamson, Michael Parks, Saxon, Mark Lawrence, you know that name, Kelly Preston, you remember her? And it's, if you go away from that movie for a few years, like five or six years, and you go back to it, it's a lot more fun. But if you see it too soon after you first seen it, you're like, oh, I hate it even more. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's a very strange thing. It's, it's like, Two hoods, two brothers on the run, and they meet vampires everywhere. Very strange film. Um, I think the attention was good, but I think the execution was muddled. That being said, I agree. The last couple of years of John's work has been bit parts and strange things. But I want to add this: in June 2017, he was he was offered an award, a Heritage Film Festival. Brentwood, apparently Brentwood, in Tennessee, and John is John is still alive, by the way. He's eighty-three now, and him and his wife moved to Tennessee because she, he's become ill, and she didn't want him to be a resident in one of the L.A. actors' homes because she thought there was no uh, 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 activities for older people. So they're they're currently uh, he's still around, and they're currently in the uh, Brentwood, Tennessee. And he occasionally gets out for uh, a spot in the movie. I'm not sure if it's a walk-on or a voiceover or what. But, yeah, he's just taken a little ill, plus the addition of 83 years of life. But he's still around. A phenomenal amount of work. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. I mean, we
0: just kind of touched on it because there's so many films and so many TV shows. here did. bit Yeah, yeah. When I mentioned it to my wife that we were doing it, she was like, oh my God, how many Nazis and cops and you know, mob lords are you going to have to talk about? So anyway, salute to John Saxon, guy that we both love. So thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat. i John Saxon. Next time around, we'll be talking the legendary Humphrey Bogart. Yes. If you'd like to contact us here, comment suggestions, or a filmmaker, musician, like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com/forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. Or you can check out the Podbean site, thirdeyescinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes, apple.com, forward slash US podcast, Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine podcast, ID 553402044, or just better yet, look for us says Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine podcast. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the Improved Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes
1: Network, now on Podbean. Yes, we hope you enjoyed the show, and thank you for staying with us, too. It's probably one of the longer shows we've done lately, only because of the amount of work he's done, and we didn't even touch on some of it. But this is a gentleman who's been acting from the 50s through the 2000s, and we want to get some discussion of key points. So we hope you enjoyed it, and please come back next week. or next time. <laughs> adventure yeah 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 so we did get bowie uh already named as i told you because she has one blue eye and one green just like david but of course every time i you know i brought her, i brought her into the vet the other day she goes Bowie, bowie like david and they looked at me like blank i'm like oh you're <laughs> 20 years old right come on you're still alive with david bowie's round i had a
0: girlfriend that had no
1: fucking idea
0: who ringo Starr was
1: ouch <laughs> so anyway, yeah, there was that And, uh, you yeah, know, a little tumultuous Because she's a spitfire Oh, she'll calm down when she's in the home <laughs> I mean, I get up at four for work normally But she gets me up at three <laughs> That's a gap for you <laughs> Yeah, and of course people are like Just close the door yeah. I did, and I heard bang <laughs> Shh So the guitars had to go higher up on the wall because I just fell asleep one morning getting ready for work. Oh, my cats
0: love to play the guitar with their
1: teeth and stuff, yes. (laughs) Well, this is on the wall, so she's reaching up to it and, like, no, 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 not the Gibson Les Paul. (laughs) So I had to move that. Covered the amps with the towel. Uh, So we were looking for a companion, you know? And I was thinking, uh, an older cat, you know, it save another life and somebody to keep her company. Uh, we went to this other place, not where we got her, and that's actually close by in Jersey City. And uh, we were looking online, but, you know, they were disinterested in humans, those two. And there was one really sweet one, had a smile. So we filled out paperwork, yada, yada, you go through the whole thing. Are they good people? You know, so we went to pick her up. This is a couple of weeks ago. It turned out they felt a lump, and I said, "Look, I had to explain the whole thing." And you know, I'm like, my, "My cat died in August, uh, July, July, and uh, you know it was really hard. And, but you she'll be with you to the end." And I said, "Yeah, but looks we don't know what the end is, you know. <laughs> And and I felt really big. She was a sweet cat. So I said, "We're gonna bring her to the vet." Okay, well let me know what happens. Right? You know they wanted me to take her, pick her up for me. Bring it to the vet. And I said, no, no, no. So then they called me and they confirmed cancer. And they don't know if it's malignant or benign. They will take it to the doctor. Believe it or not, they took a long time to do that. They said they're going to remove the tumor. And I'm kind of shocked, like, so you didn't? Anyway, just for the cat's sake, you know what I'm saying? So I said, look, we're going to come by again. And I was looking for something maybe that looked like Bowie color. So they said, well, we have a female upstairs who has very similar look. Uh, she's only about a year she's so okay Bowie's a couple of months maybe so i said well she's upstairs with the other kittens she just never came down so all right send so me a picture okay it looks good I go back see her it looks good do you want her now and I said well i didn't know i was gonna take her when i went to see her so i didn't bring the thing i'll come next week so i did cat was so sweet i felt so bad It was always around you. It was really sweet, not destructive, not jumping around. Wouldn't come into the bedroom unless invited. But Bowie was doing, I was like, what the fuck is that? And so I closed the door, I left the other cat out in the living room, but I heard her crying every night. And I was like, oh, jeez." So I said, let me try this in the morning. And Bowie jumped on her and tried to attack her. I said, oh, this is not going to happen. So I had to bring her back. Uh, so it's Nick's on that idea right now. And the next day, I took her to get spayed, and so she has the bubble of shame on her head, uh, <laughs> and she's not happy. You know, it's hard to eat. It's hard to drink water. You know, you know, doctor goes, oh, they find a way. No, you're not a cat with a big fucking thing on your head. You know, uh, so you have to go out of your way to make sure, you know, try different size bowls so the cone, you know, blah blah blah. So that's been going on. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, before we start, I just saw the funniest thing. They just shared it. Robert De Niro was on CNN this morning, you know, because uh, promoting The Irishman was getting great reviews. <laughs> so he said something that the, the CNN guy said. From where it starts, the soundbite is, "Well, they're not going to like you on Fox News." And De Niro says, "Fuck them, fuck them," and the guy goes, "Well." We're not in violation of FCC rules because we're on cable, we're not TV, but this is a morning show. He goes, I don't care. And then he goes off. He goes, this man does not deserve. <laughs> <laughs> One minute and 30 seconds, he nailed it. You know, A lot of people don't like Bob, but I'm like, you know what? He don't care.
0: Yeah, and I do like what he's saying lately, which, of course, is pissing everybody else off. Because a lot of right. people are like, oh, fuck the Nero. We don't need him. like, really? <laughs> now that he's making sense, you're going to write him off? Fuck you.
1: I, I agree with you. We'll go to the in but I agree with you. Where are all these people coming out of the blue? He's never like, you know, you either like some of these movies you don't like some of these movies. That's what the world's all about. But all of a sudden, all the De Niro hits you. For this guy, you kidding me? He made some of the best movies. You know, if you got a bag of movies, y'all. You know, <laughs> they're full of, like, gold. Go a go, Goodfellas, The Godfather, blah blah blah. He, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. See, and he does a lot
0: of mob movies and stuff like Taxi Driver that I don't like. You know, I don't like those kind of movies usually. But I still recognize, and I said it during our Pacino show. You put him and Pacino in the same room. These are two of the greatest actors we have living right now. There's no right, question. Exactly. It's obvious. Right, no question. It's obvious
1: that this guy, and I don't think he's using his celebrity status to go out there and say this. I just figure to talk to him. Yeah. Right? They pinched the nerve and he's like, you know what? Fuck him. Yeah. Fuck 'em. Fuck and he's talking about Fox News, because he knows everybody knows Fox News. them. Who cares what they say? It's propaganda network that? anyway. <laughs> yeah. That's a translation. It's slowly turning against Trump this week, thank god. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Right next time <laughs> Okay. Let's go right. with John Saxon.
0: Every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters, cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by Boardman committee. These are the province of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about what. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At
1: eye level. Bringing more to you.
0: Only on the Big Papa Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life.
1: I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his Scarlet Women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover?
0: Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the Yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side, and the light, from the organized to the out of the way.
1: This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling.
0: Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails an organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life.
1: Moving Towards Life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker.
0: Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network,
1: on Blog Talk Radio.
0: Every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult
1: entertainment. Drop in for a spell of Doc Savage, Louis Hall, myself, discuss the beloved, the community, the career, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and
0: literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soul-asleep derivative mire of our modern
1: age. Tune in. Turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine.
0: Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio.